In the U.S. Supreme Court, a high-stakes case that could give it major say in how millions of Americans get information. Justices are questioning laws in Texas and Florida that prohibit Facebook, Instagram, and other sites from deciding whether certain political views can ever get seen. It's Monday, February 26th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a slew of Republicans are jousting to be Donald Trump's running mate. Donald Trump is watching, he is listening, he's looking at people's reactions, he's looking at media's reactions. This is like The Apprentice. Trump's VP wannabes coming up. Also, the film Oppenheimer has 13 Oscar nominations, many in technical categories. We'll take a look at some of the people behind the scenes of the film. It's 401, news headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Michigan holds its presidential nominating contest tomorrow. NPR's Leila Fadel reports a progressive coalition in the state is urging voters to register their anger over President Biden's response to the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza by urging them to cast uncommitted ballots. The coalition is called Listen to Michigan and is getting support of some 40 elected Democrats in the state, including the mayor of Dearborn. Abdullah Hamoud City is majority Arab American. The people who are dying, these are our family members and our friends, people who we know directly, but also pain due to betrayal, mm. betrayal by this president, betrayal by the administration, and betrayal by all those that are uplifting the most right-wing government in Israel's history and continually supporting this genocide. He says the Arab American and American Muslim population might not be sizable enough to make a candidate win, but it can make a candidate lose. Leila Faldil, NPR News, Dearborn. A Pentagon official tells NPR that the man who died after setting himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. yesterday was U.S. Airman Aaron Bushnell. NPR reviewed video of the incident, which was live streamed on social media. In it, Bushnell said he was protesting Israel's war in Gaza. A Pentagon internal review finds no ill intent in the communication breakdown that surrounded Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's recent hospitalizations. Here's NPR's Tom Bowman. The review basically says the secretary's staff was limited in three significant ways from basically telling the White House what happened. First, they talk about medical privacy laws. They talked about sharing medical information with the secretary's staff. And they also said for privacy reasons, his staff were hesitant to pry or share any information that they did learn. And finally, they said they had problems with timely, secure communications to talk with officials as well. NPR's Tom Bowman. U.S. regulators and nine state attorney general are suing to stop the merger of Kroger and Albertsons. More from NPR's Alina Selyuk. Kroger, the biggest grocery chain, wants to buy Albertsons, the second biggest chain, for almost $25 billion. And the deal has been under antitrust review for more than a year. Now the Federal Trade Commission and nine states are suing to block the merger, saying it would eliminate competition for both shoppers and for workers, potentially leading to higher prices, lower quality services, and worse benefits for employees. The companies have argued that together they would be stronger to face growing national competition from Amazon, Walmart, Costco, and even dollar stores. The grocery retailers had proposed to sell off hundreds of stores to essentially create a competitor to themselves, but the regulators say the plan falls short. Alina Seluch, NPR News, Washington. U.S. stocks end the day lower. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down 62 points to settle at 39,069. It's NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Moore Healy is blaming the management of Steward Healthcare for the company's financial problems. The for-profit company has said its money troubles are jeopardizing the operation of its nine Massachusetts hospitals. Healy said last week that Steward failed to supply adequate financial documents she requested. This afternoon, she called the situation one of Steward's own creation. It frankly disgusts me, as I've spoken to earlier, uh, the fact that Uh, A particular CEO came and chose to do what it appears he did in terms of how he ran operations and put patients and providers and our communities at risk. Stewart said last week it doesn't have all the information Healy asked for. The governor has called on Stewart to stop doing business in Massachusetts. Congressman Jake Auchincloss is renewing calls for a mutual sustainable ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. He told CNN today that such an agreement needs to stipulate that Hamas no longer rule in Gaza. He says Hamas has vowed to destroy the Jewish state and Jewish people worldwide. Hamas is an internationally recognized terrorist organization. It's using its own denizens as human shields. It is holding hostages. Hamas needs to be dismantled so that it cannot have any role in post-war governance in Gaza. Auchincloss says the military operations that Israel is carrying out there are necessary for the return of hostages that are being held by Hamas and for the demilitarization of Gaza. A 50-year-old man is suing the state for $1 million over a wrongful conviction. James Lucian spent 27 years in prison for a drug-related murder in Roxbury he did not commit. His conviction was thrown out in 2021, and he was set free. Lucian's lawyers argued in a complaint filed Friday that Boston police officers provided false testimony and tainted evidence. There's been no response from the city or the state as yet. In the forecast, so nice out there right now. Bright skies around today, but may not come back again until the end of the week. Mild temperatures lasting, though. Tonight, clear skies, about 31 for a low. Tomorrow, clouds on the increase. Highs again in the mid-50s. Could get some rain Wednesday, some gusty winds, but warm ones could reach 56 degrees. 55 now in Boston at 407. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The First Amendment was back at the Supreme Court today. At issue was free speech on big social media platforms. Social media companies sued Texas and Florida over state laws that limit the site's ability to moderate content. How the justices rule could change the way these platforms operate. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson watched the arguments at the court, and she is here now in the studio. Hey, Carrie. Hi, Ari. Tell us about how these laws in Florida and Texas came to be. State officials in Texas and Florida said these big sites had been silencing conservative voices. They passed these laws after former President Donald Trump was kicked off sev- several platforms following the violence at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. And these laws bar the big platforms from discriminating against people because of their viewpoint. They also require sites to give individual explanations for blocking or booting people. Attorney Henry Whitaker argued for the Florida law. He said these social media platforms only act on a tiny part of the material they host on their sites. Then Justice Elena Kagan jumped in. You know, the 1% that's like 
we don't want well, anti-vaxxers on our site sure. or we don't want insurrectionists on our site. I mean, that's what motivated these laws, isn't it? And that's what's getting people upset about them. Justice Kagan says the problem is there's disagreement about what constitutes misinformation about things like voting and health. And which social media platforms are covered by these laws and how did they respond in court today? That's actually an open question about how many sites these laws cover. It seems like YouTube, Facebook and Instagram count, but many of the justices across ideological lines really struggled with whether the driving app Uber might be included or e-commerce sites where people buy things, Venmo, and if so, how that might change their legal analysis. Attorney Paul Clement argued for the trade associations challenging these laws. He encouraged the justices to focus on the very biggest platforms and the stakes for them. If this statute goes into effect, we'd sort of have to fundamentally change our business models. So, you know, what, what we might do in the interim, at least some of these companies might do, is, you know, just like, well, let's do only puppy dogs, at least in Florida, until we can get this straightened out. You know, Carrie, there's so much precedent for the Supreme Court ruling on the First Amendment, but not a ton for social media sites and Internet speech. So how deeply did the justices dig into the history here? They really did dig in. You know, the social media companies say the kind of arranging and curating they do is an editorial judgment that deserves a lot of First Amendment protection, like a newspaper does, gets. But but lawyers for Florida and Texas say the big platforms are more like phone companies or like UPS. They connect calls or drop off parcels, but they don't speak themselves. Justice Samuel Alito says neither of those analogies really worked or sounded right to him. He says the Internet is different than a newspaper. There's no space limit, for one thing. The social media platforms say that makes content moderation and blocking all the more important because otherwise these platforms are going to be filled with garbage or hate speech and users can't find what they want to see there. The Republican-led states that passed these laws say that the social media companies engaged in a form of censorship. Did the justices engage with that idea today? There was a lot of discussion of this. Justices Clarence Thomas and Alito seemed to take issue with what the platforms call content moderation. It was kind of a euphemism for censorship, they said. But Justice Brett Kavanaugh took a really different view. He says only the government engages in censorship. When a private company decides what to include or exclude, that usually gets first Amendment protection, he said. And the Chief Justice, John Roberts, says it matters whether it's the government or a private business making those big decisions about content. So in just a sentence or two, any sense of how the court might rule here? You know, they seem to be thinking out loud about how far they want to go. The laws in Florida and Texas have been blocked at an early stage. Lots of questions about how these laws might work in practice for some of the smaller social media platforms. But the Solicitor General encouraged the justices to leave that for another day and another case, not this one. (laughs) That's NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you. My pleasure. Michigan's presidential primary is tomorrow. It's a state that President Biden won by less than three percentage points in 2020. And some Democratic voters who were part of Biden's winning coalition back then say they are unsure about him now. One big factor is Israel's war in Gaza in response to the October 7th attacks by Hamas. That war has now killed almost 30,000 Palestinians. And the issue is fueling a growing campaign powered by young voters to vote uncommitted in tomorrow's primary. NPR's Elena Moore reports. At a coffee shop in Hamtramck, a small city with a large Arab and Muslim population near Detroit, State Representative Abraham Ayash thinks back to his start in politics. Actually, it's a little up the street. The UAW hall where I started doing my work 
uh, for the Obama campaign. So, you know, he I was, was 13 then. Now he's the floor leader in the Michigan House. Ayash, whose family is from Yemen, is one of several young elected leaders supporting the Listen to Michigan campaign, a pledge to vote uncommitted in the primary unless President Biden calls for an immediate and permanent ceasefire in Gaza and halts additional aid to Israel. You can't come out and enthusiastically support any candidate who's not listening to your concerns when you've done all the things that you, were under, you understood to believe were how you organize in a democracy. 24-year-old State Representative Alabas Farhat represents portions of Detroit and Dearborn, another prominent city that has a sizable Arab and Muslim population. To Farhat, who is Lebanese-American, it's notable there are Gen Z and millennial elected officials in this fight. We do not want to continue to be a part of a generation of voters, a generation of Americans, who continues to hand off the country to the next generation at a state of war. And while elected leaders may be amplifying the movement, it's a campaign created and led by young organizers in the area. We're experiencing a revolution. In, in That's 31-year-old Lexis Zaydan, a Palestinian-American from Dearborn who is a spokeswoman and lead organizer for the Listen to Michigan campaign. You're going to have your older generation that might still understand or believe in this two-party system, but you're also having younger voters that are trying so many different strategies and ways to just try. Like, what can we do to try to upend the, the current electoral system and let elected officials know that we're not settling for this anymore? The goal of the campaign is to get upwards of 10,000 votes, because that was the margin that former President Trump won in 2016. It's much less, though, compared to Biden's margin in 2020, when he received 150,000 more votes. In a statement to NPR, a Biden campaign spokesperson stressed that the president is working hard to earn every vote in Michigan. But despite starting within the Arab community, organizers stress the movement is now multi-faith, multi-race, and multi-generational. 24-year-old Michaela Stevens, who identifies as mixed race, and 23-year-old Paris Pittman, who's black, sit together outside a bagel shop on a windy morning in Detroit. I think what's like important is just kind of letting that community know that that they do have allies i wouldn't say like we're just the same but we have a lot of common things so we need to be there for each other because this could be us too this was stevens us. and Pittman are both considering voting uncommitted on tuesday because of gaza and a vote general dissatisfaction with biden vote uncommitted at an uncommitted rally in Hamtramck just days before the election, 30-year-old Nada Mahmoud gets emotional thinking about why she's there. I'm feeling like anguish over what we've been seeing online and like it just, you want to do as anything you can, anything in your power, this is the minimum that we can do. That's the voice of 28-year-old Palestinian organizer Dima El-Hassan. Tuesday's election has an even added weight for her. It marks the first time she's able to vote since becoming a citizen. I feel powerful, you know, um, because my whole life I got to watch what's happening and have no say in it. And this is... This is the first time that I get to have a say and I get to go. Voters to like El Hassan have to vote by Tuesday, but they hope to wake up Wednesday, having sent a strong message about their political power to the White House. Elena Moore, NPR News, Hamtramck, Michigan. The death of a non-binary teenager the day after a fight at an Oklahoma high school has prompted vigils throughout the country. 
Max Bryan with member station KWGS in Tulsa was at the vigil in the student's hometown last night. And we'll note that in this report, a lawmaker appears to denigrate transgender people. Hundreds of people gathered holding candles at a park in the small Oklahoma town of Owasso. I want to thank everybody for coming. I think it means a lot that so many people showed up from our community to honor this life. They were there to honor Nex Benedict, a 16-year-old student who died earlier this month, the day after a fight in a school bathroom. Police say preliminary results show Benedict did not die of trauma, but the student told officers at the hospital that three girls beat them on the floor until they blacked out, and that the girls had picked on them for how they dressed. Student Robin Ingersoll, who had dated Benedict, described them as someone with a tough exterior but a big heart. We could all learn how to be better so something like this doesn't happen again. We could all grow for next. At least seven vigils were held for Benedict throughout Oklahoma, a state that has seen increasingly hostile rhetoric against LGBTQ people. The state also passed a bill requiring students to use school bathrooms that correlate with their birth sex. When asked Friday about how the rhetoric and bills affect a situation like Benedict's, Republican State Senator Tom Woods said his heart goes out to the situation, but then he said this. We are a religious state. Uh, we're going, we are going to fight to keep that bill out of the state of Oklahoma because we're a Christian state. The comments sparked a sharp reaction in Oklahoma. A speaker at a vigil in nearby Tulsa said Woods doesn't understand real filth because he doesn't look in the mirror. But in Owasso, the speakers mostly remembered Benedict's life. Anna Richardson, an Owasso high school parent who organized the event, said she wanted students to have a safe place to grieve and remember their peer. I hope people come away from this knowing that it's okay to be different and that you're accepted here in our local physical community if you are different and that there are people here that love you. Police say they are waiting on autopsy results to officially determine the cause of Benedict's death. For NPR News, I'm Max Bryan in Tulsa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes at the CPAC meeting in Maryland, Republicans who are scrambling to be Donald Trump's running mate strut their stuff in hopes of catching Trump's eye. This story and much more still to come. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And Endless Energy, offering insulation replacements and home energy assessments designed to help your home stay comfortable and be energy efficient. GoEndlessEnergy.com. A dip for major stocks on Wall Street today after some recent record highs. The Dow dropped nearly two-tenths of a percent. S&P fell nearly four-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq was down about one-tenth of a percent. Federal regulators are trying to block a merger involving the parent company of Star Market and Shaw's. The grocery chains are owned by Albertsons, which is trying to merge with Kroger. It would be the largest supermarket deal in history. Today, the Federal Trade Commission filed a lawsuit trying to block the deal, claiming it would drive up prices and eliminate competition. The companies say merging would help them better compete with retailers such as Walmart and Amazon. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens, 
For dates and campuses, visit explo.org slash summer. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. 55 degrees now in the Boston area, mainly clear skies tonight, just below freezing. Tomorrow should turn gray through the day. Windy, still warmish, about 54 degrees. Wednesday could reach 56, strong winds, highs up around uh, the mid-50s once again, and we should have some rain ahead on Wednesday. Could see the sunshine return, though, for Thursday. 55 degrees now in Boston at 421. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at EasyCater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. This year's Oscars have a bona fide frontrunner, a film with 13 nominations, more than any other title this year. It is, of course, Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's epic about the making of the atomic bomb. The biopic is not just being recognized for its story and acting, but also for its craft. Oppenheimer is nominated across many technical categories, including Best Cinematography and Best Sound. And today, we're going to learn a bit more about how it was made. Join me now are NPR's Mandalit Barco and Bilal Qureshi, who spent some time with the people behind the scenes of this movie. Hello to both of you. Hi, Elsa. Hey, Elsa. Hey. All right, so let's start with you, Mandalit. Christopher Nolan, I mean, he's known for having a very exacting approach to making his films. How do you see that in the way he used sound? Well, he's really traditional. And, you know, I spoke with one of the film's Oscar-nominated production sound mixers, Willie Burton. He told me Nolan is an audio genius who mostly records his actors and the ambient noise around them live on set and on location. Oh, wow. And, and Bilal, when it comes to images in Nolan's movies, I mean, there's a similar thing, right? Nolan is this evangelist for IMAX and using the biggest canvas possible, I hear. Yeah, so we're going to begin this deep dive behind the scenes with the film's cinematographer, Hoyte van Hoytema. He shot each of Christopher Nolan's last few films, and here he is. We kind of like choosing the, the hardest way to do things or the, the, the least sort of logical or least comfortable things. That has meant aerial battles in Dunkirk. Freeway car chases in Tenet. And space shuttles and black holes in Interstellar. But Oppenheimer is a different kind of epic. Yes, of course, there's the Trinity test and the film's centerpiece explosion. But for the majority of its three hours, it's a biopic that unfolds in classrooms and congressional hearings, and in close-ups. Members of the security board, the so-called derogatory information in your indictment of me cannot be fairly understood except in the context of my life. Hoytze van Hoytema says that was both the visual challenge and the opportunity of Oppenheimer. You know, historically, we've been putting cameras on planes or on boats and did a lot of kind of impossible things. But to really go back to the base and to sort of strip it down and to look at the human face again and three hours long people talking, you know, faces. Hoyte van Hoytem is just one of the great naturalistic cameramen. Filmmaker Christopher Nolan. Over the years using the IMAX format together, I think we'd both found that 
some of the most striking compositions on that huge screen would come about as a result of a close-up photographing a face rather than a giant landscape. I mean, the landscapes, you know, are spectacular in IMAX. But more and more, we've been drawn to trying to photograph the intimate moments on that format. Matt Mulcahy writes about cinematography for Filmmaker magazine. The final image of Oppenheimer is just a close-up push-in on the character of Oppenheimer with no dialogue and uh, a tight lens. It's, it's, it's a single image that really sums up the story in, in Oppenheimer's journey. There's a lot of detail captured by IMAX film, but those close-ups are actually harder that way, as Van Hoytema explains. The camera is not very practical because it's big and, and it's very loud. The camera itself sounds like a little little diesel generator and it, the design is, is, is kind of like a, like a hotel minibar, you know? And the black and white IMAX film that was required for some of the scenes didn't even exist. They started manufacturing the film for us, and I remember we got these two test rolls from Kodak, 65-millimeter film, 1,000-feet rolls. They're not just using old-school techniques. They're, I think they are very, very innovative. Matt Mulcahy of Filmmaker Magazine says the visual process for how Oppenheimer was made, analog film, on location, and practical effects, makes its biography of a mind a more immersive and emotional experience. Even the abstract scenes that show atoms splitting and stars colliding in Dr. Oppenheimer's imagination were filmed in real life. We did a lot of tests. We did tests with, with powders and light and molten metal and aquariums with, with, with light and with brightness and darkness. But, but in the end, you know, it's not reality. It's sort of a poetic interpretation of what it is. It's, it's, it's in many ways, it's un unvisualizable, but this, this, this was definitely our best attempt to do it. But that did mean dealing with those mini-bar-sized IMAX cameras, which also create their own disruptive soundtrack, as my colleague Mandalit Del Barco learned. Bilal, those IMAX cameras are super loud, but Christopher Nolan told us that just like the visuals, he likes to record sound live. He doesn't like to have his actors re-record their lines later, what's known as ADR, automatic dialogue replacement. You're looking for that that naturalism, that depth to the performance. There's really no substitute for getting a great recording on location that has the appropriate camera perspective and that has the genuine performance of the actor in the moment. To do that, I mean, you need a great sound recordist. Willie Burton is one of the greats. When I met Burton at his home in the Hollywood Hills, I found a fellow audiophile. Oh, what kind uh, of mic is that? Wow. This is a Sennheiser mic. Sennheiser, wow. Uh, shotgun. Shotgun, okay. Uh -huh. Burton told me he and Nolan both like using boom and condenser microphones, equipment that's wired with cables on set and on location, not wireless or lavalier mics that are used widely on film sets these days. It doesn't have the full scope that a microphone like you're using today. So it sounds like a close-up all the time. A conventional microphone, you get the full sound of everything, and that's what Chris wants. Chris wants the footsteps. He wants the movement. With the actors, he wants to hear the props. He wants all of that. It's like old school. That's how we did it years ago. Over nearly five decades, Burton has worked with other big film directors, including Steven Spielberg and Ava DuVernay. Among his credits are The Color Purple, The Shawshank Redemption, and Green Mile. But the 73-year-old wasn't a typical Hollywood type. I was born outside of Tuscaloosa a little town called Matchaway, Alabama. It's a country town, basically in the woods. Burton eventually earned two Academy Awards for his work on the 1988 film Bird and for the 2006 film Dreamgirls. With Oppenheimer, he could become the first black person to win three Oscars. 
For this film, he says he had to dig trenches in the sand to hide the microphone wires. There was wind to contend with and that noisy IMAX camera. It's loud. It sounds like a... It's about five times louder than this. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it's so incredible looking. I mean, it blows your mind. Burton also worked with Nolan on his 2010 film, Tenet. I mean, he spent a lot of money on this trying to, you know, quiet the camera. And then we realized that it really wasn't going to work. It's still noisy. No matter what you do, it's just noisy. For Oppenheimer, he says they sometimes shot close-ups with a somewhat quieter 65-millimeter camera. One of the more ingenious uses of sound was at the climax of the film, when Robert Oppenheimer and his team test a bomb that could destroy the planet. Here's Nolan. It's so thrilling to see an entire audience full of people just on tenterhooks hearing only the sounds of breathing that Willie was able to get from the actors on set. And then have everybody jolted out of their seats by the impact of the explosion. Burton says even he was surprised at the effect on the audience. A lady was sitting next to me and she had a soda. And it was so loud, she jumped up. It scared us so bad, she spilled the soda all on me and in my shoe. So the rest of the movie, I had to sit there with my shoe off. That's the effect of Christopher Nolan's filmmaking approach for a movie about quantum physics and abstract science. I'm Mandalit Del Barco. I'm Bilal Qureshi. NPR News. In Los Angeles. This is 90.9 WBUR. Wild temperature swings are driving cases of trench foot and frostbite among people who are homeless, but some of them are spurning shelters because COVID cases are surging. That story coming up in about five minutes on WBUR. Boston Bruins play tonight. You'll have to stay up late, though, if you want to watch. The Bees are in Seattle to take on the Kraken. Puck drop is at 10 o'clock our time. And at spring training in Florida this afternoon, Red Sox beat the Phillies. 7 to 6. This is 90.9 WBUR, 55 degrees under sunny skies in Boston. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Don Foot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at House or donfoot.com Beauty on Time. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Texas and President Biden's administration are fighting over access to a park on the southern border. Activists are questioning the park's name. Because it should not be named after coward and traitor. Shelby Park and the Confederacy, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, Congress faces a deadline Friday to prevent a partial federal government shutdown. In a letter, Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is urging his colleagues to take action, as we hear from NPR's Eric McDaniel. 
Senate Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is excoriating the, quote, extreme wing within the Republican Party, end quote, for forcing the country toward what he describes as an unnecessary shutdown, pointing to impacts to federal agencies. The faction of the Republican Party, which sees bipartisan legislating as a failure, could oust their Republican Speaker, Mike Johnson, if he advances any proposal that could attract Democratic votes, despite that being a requirement to pass in the Senate and be signed into law by President Biden. Congressional leadership will meet at the White House this week. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, Washington. In the Middle East, there's been a major shakeup today inside the Palestinian Authority that could affect the way Gaza is ruled after the Israeli-Hamas war ends. Mediators are looking for a new Palestinian government to oversee both Gaza and the West Bank. But as NPR's Daniel Estrin tells us from Tel Aviv, tensions remain high in the region. The big question here surrounding this is who rules Gaza when the war ends? And the U.S. wants the Palestinian Authority to take power. However, the Palestinian Authority's leaders are deeply unpopular among Palestinians. Israel's government is also hostile to the Palestinian Authority. So there has been a lot of behind-the-scenes talks led by the U.S. about how do you revitalize the Palestinian government. And that, that is the background to this shakeup. That's Daniel Estrin. The U.S. has been pushing for a two-state solution in Gaza, something Israel's prime minister staunchly opposes. But Israel is backing a tentative proposal for another temporary ceasefire in the fighting to allow the release of more hostages. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. President Biden is meeting with congressional leaders today to try to avoid a partial shutdown of the federal government this week. Funding expires Friday for the Transportation Department and other agencies. The shutdown could affect housing, food and veterans programs. Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss told CNN today that he blames infighting by House Republicans for yet another financial crisis. They remain the odd man out on this. So if they want to govern like grown-ups, then we have no issue. We have the deal that passed Congress. But if they want to have a tantrum at the negotiating table, then we're heading towards a shutdown. An effort to avoid a shutdown fell through the cracks yesterday over Republican policy demands on issues that include abortion and security concerns over immigration. State Attorney General Andrea Campbell has unveiled a strategic plan for the next three years. She says her office will continue to fight discrimination and inequities in housing, labor, and the financial services markets. The plan promotes public health and safety, especially in the areas of health care access and environmental health. Traffic is a lot slower than usual on Route 95 South in Waltham and could be over the next several hours. State transportation officials say two of the four lanes are closed at Route 20 for emergency repairs to fix a giant pothole on a bridge. Right now, backups begin on 95 South at Route 2. The lane closures should last through the evening commute. Brookline is celebrating award-winning poet and Brookline native Amy Lowell. Starting at 6 tonight, the Brookline Village Library will celebrate Lowell's life and work with a video and readings of her poems by the town's poet laureate and some residents. Amanda Hurst is Brookline's library director. She says Lowell was well-educated, though she never attended college. Most of Amy's poetry is associated with the Imagist movement, and um, she is known for writing some romantic poetry as well. Lowell was born in Brookline in February 1874 and died in 1925. She posthumously won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1926. 55 degrees in Boston. The forecast is next.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's nationally ranked MBA and master's programs in technology, finance, and analytics, become an essential force in today's evolving marketplace. Clear moonlit skies tonight, down around freezing. Tomorrow, a mix of clouds and sun. Warm again, temperatures in the mid-50s. Could have showers and fog on Wednesday, could possibly reach the upper 50s. Again, 55 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. A warning that parts of this next story may be hard to listen to. Here in Washington yesterday, a 25-year-old active-duty U.S. airman filmed himself walking in uniform toward the gate of the Israeli embassy. He stated that he was about to make an extreme protest against Israel's actions in Gaza, and he then set himself on fire. After being rushed to the hospital, the airman died of his injuries. NPR's Quill Lawrence is covering this story. Hi, Quill. Hey, Ari. This was such a shocking incident. What can you tell us about the airman who died? It's still pretty basic. Uh, He was an Air Force software engineer named Aaron Bushnell uh, out of San San Antonio, Texas. He'd been in the Air Force for nearly four years after going to college where he'd studied IT. The Pentagon today called it tragic and expressed condolences to his family, but they wouldn't comment further, which is their policy when they notify next of kin. A housing charity that Bushnell worked with uh, told Texas Public Radio that Bushnell planned this quite carefully. He made a will and he specified specified that his savings should be donated to the Palestine Children's Relief Fund and everything down to arranging that a neighbor would take care of his cat. And there's no question that this was a protest against Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza, right? Yes. Bushnell, his last uh, post on Facebook included the line, uh, what would I do if my country was committing genocide? The answer is, you're doing it right now. And uh, the video he made of himself, it was obtained by an independent journalist named uh, Talia Jane. She posted it on social media. And Bushnell uh, clearly said that he was protesting the war in Gaza And he shouted free Palestine several times before he collapsed. Uh, We should be clear, critics of Israel often use terms like genocide and apartheid to describe Israel's treatment of Palestinians. And the Jewish state vehemently rejects that and claims self-defense. How significant is the fact that he was on active duty and did this while wearing his uniform? Well, serving military are not allowed to engage in political acts. The U.S. troops are supposed to be outside of the political fray. But we saw on the January, January 6th attack on the Capitol, uh, there were several active duty troops involved there and veterans. Some of them, many of them have since been charged. And the fear that the military is politicized is usually a concern from the other end of the political spectrum that right wing groups, hate groups would sometimes recruit veterans or, or they would encourage their members to join and get trained by the U.S. military. In this case, the protest came from the other side, from the left. Um, but the military is is just as diverse as America, and there are all kinds of backgrounds and viewpoints. Uh, the protests like this are, are incredibly rare. 
rare, but as shocking as it is, self-immolation has a history as a form of political protest in this country. Yes, and, and elsewhere, um, it uh, goes back to uh, a famous photograph you may remember of a Buddhist monk who set himself alight in Saigon in 1963. Um, a couple of years later, a Quaker man in America burned himself to death outside the Pentagon to protest U.S. involvement in that war. Um, also, the beginning of the Arab Spring in Tunisia started when a young a vegetable seller set himself on fire. That that lo launched a wave of revolts. And then just last December here in the U.S., a protester who had a Palestinian flag did that outside the Israeli consulate in Atlanta. Uh, but I cannot remember any case of an active duty military member uh, doing anything like this. That's NPR's Quill Lawrence. Thank you, Quill. Thanks, Ari. Homeless people in the Midwest have been suffering through giant temperature swings this winter. The weather has brought on waves of injuries and disease, especially for those who would rather brave the elements than go into shelters. Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports. The brutal cold earlier this winter in Kansas City has inflicted a lot of pain. <coughs> In a small crowded waiting room here sits a big guy in sooty overalls and a military-style cap with tears streaming down his cheeks. Okay, it's an emergency. It's like hurting really bad. I mean, I cannot stand how bad it hurts. It's almost like being sprayed in the face with mace or pepper spray. Every time you blink, just sand is just rolling over your eyeballs. Like many homeless people, this man felt uncomfortable using his last name, so he didn't give it. He goes by E, and E says that during recent Sub-Zero nights, He's resorted to burning lumber treated with preservatives like arsenic, copper, and chromium to stay warm. He says the toxic smoke wrecked his vision. Normally, he burns plastic. The plastic doesn't hurt my eyes. It's the wood. And then burning those chemicals, and then it gets in your eyes. Not everyone makes it into the clinic. Last month, a homeless man was found dead in the bitter cold just a few blocks from here. And record lows have been sandwiched by rainy days, causing more misery. K.K. Osmond's founder and CEO of Care Beyond the Boulevard, a group that provides free medical assistance. We have seen uh, quite a bit of trench foot. We've seen some beginning and then some late stages frostbite. Trench foot from living in wet shoes plagued soldiers in World War I. Frostbite, like Rodney Jinx has, can lead to amputations. Well, that hurts. <laughs> it stings and feels like pins and needles. You can barely feel your toes and just... It hurts. <laughs> I'm going to take your blood pressure with that. <clears throat> Osman says the off and on harsh weather also triggers disease. We're seeing COVID and flu A right now. We have people in congregate shelters, right? So you have people head to toe to head to toe sleeping to get warm. And they're also coughing and breathing and all of the other things. And then there are folks who won't go to shelters at all. Osman is dropping off blankets and tarps at a big wooded homeless camp near downtown Kansas City. Rats scurry between weather-beaten tents. There was an older lady, and I touched her hands, and they were ice cold. And I was like, you know, you guys, there's a shelter, um, a cold-weather shelter. And she said, I can't go. And I said, why can't you go? She said, because my dog's here. Pets aren't allowed in most shelters, so pet owners face an excruciating choice when temperatures plummet. Thomas Castro, with singed eyebrows and sooty hands, has other reasons for staying out here. No rules. Seriously, we're adults. 
we can actually get along. I don't like that feeling like I'm a number or livestock or even um, an exhibit, if you will. Shelters work hard to accommodate as many people as possible, but it's a tough task. Marvin Gaddy takes refuge on cold days here at the public library, but he spends most of his nights under a bridge. He's not comfortable with all of the people in shelters. They put everybody into a shelter together, and you got people just walking around all night because they're on drugs. You got mentally ill people just talking to themselves all night. You know, and it's hard to rest. Gaddy says the shelters are dangerous. E, the guy with smoke-damaged eyes, avoids shelters too and tries to keep himself awake at night outside. Well, I try not to sleep at nighttime. I try to sleep in the daytime where people can kind of watch and keep eye and make sure no one's doing anything crazy while you're sleeping. He's got reasons. He's seen people attacked and robbed in their sleep. He says he's seen campfires explode and a vacant house burned down because of reckless behavior. I've learned a lot living out on the streets and stuff like that. I've learned a lot. You have to really know what you're doing out here to survive. Local care providers say more and more people face tackling that steep learning curve necessary to stay alive while homeless. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Mexico City is teetering on the edge of a massive water crisis. The reservoirs that are critical to the city's water supply are at historic lows. Authorities are warning of major shortages. From Mexico City, Emily Green reports. I was in the middle of reporting this story from my home when this happened. This is the water currently coming from my sink faucet. With a sink full of dishes, the water stopped running altogether. It wasn't entirely a surprise. Mexico City is in the middle of a water crisis. Authorities have restricted water flow from the reservoirs, resulting in low pressure across large swaths of the city, and sometimes none at all. The water situation in Mexico City is at a very critical level, and it's getting more severe throughout the years. That's Tamara Luengo, a water expert in Mexico City. The reservoirs that supply around 20% of water to the city's 22 million residents are drying up. They are less than half full due to abnormally low rainfall in recent years, which means the next few months will be critical until Mexico City's rainy season begins. That's still three months away. President Andres Manuel López Obrador says officials are addressing the water shortage. He says new wells are being drilled, and authorities are repairing equipment to extract more water from existing wells. Aging infrastructure is a big reason for Mexico's water crisis. The city loses around 40% of its supply to leaks. Here's Loengo again. This unsustainable water management accentuates the severity of the water situation in the city. And climate change is making the situation exponentially worse. For some residents in Mexico City, access to water is a daily battle they're all too familiar with. Ecatepec is a working class city on the capital's northern edge. On a residential street, neighbors pour out of their houses. They're eager to show me what they live through. Maria Cristina Playas holds out a bottle filled with a dark brown liquid. She says this is the water that comes through the tap. I lean down to smell it. Ooh, it really smells like sewage. It's, it's disgusting. Playa says half the street gets this water out of their tap. 
and half the street gets no water at all. It's been this way for years. To get by, residents here pay for water to be trucked in from private companies. For her family of four, Playa spends around $70 a month on non-drinkable water just to clean the dishes and flush the toilet. It's money she doesn't have. Aunque nosotros nos ajustemos a mil litros que nos surtan, no alcanza. We make do with the thousand liters we receive, but it's not enough, she says. In some parts of Mexico, water is so precious that armed guards accompany water tanks to make sure they aren't stolen. About 12 hours after the water stops running in my apartment building, in one of Mexico City's upscale neighborhoods, a truck arrives carting a water tank. It's a private company. A worker connects a tube from the tank to the building's cistern. Water begins pouring in, 10,000 liters of it. Water here has rarely seemed so precious. Climate change and mismanagement have exacerbated the inequalities between those who have access to it and those who don't. For NPR News, I'm Emily Green in Mexico City. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The chair of the Republican National Committee is stepping down early next month. Ronna McDaniel has said she'd step down after the South Carolina primary, which was this weekend. What the move signals for this year's elections coming up at 5.15 here at 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go. Sunsets in Boston at 5.30 tonight. We should have clear moonlit skies overnight down around freezing. For tomorrow, sunshine and clouds both warm once again. Temperatures in the mid-50s could have showers and fog on Wednesday. Temperatures could reach the upper 50s to just about 60 degrees. As spring training in Florida today, the Red Sox beat the Phillies 7-6. to six. Bruins play tonight. They're going to be in Seattle to take on the Kraken. The puck drops at 10 o'clock our time. This is the last game of the Bees' four-city road trip out west. This is 90.9 WBUR, 55 degrees still in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. On stage now through March 3rd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel proud every time I listen to WBUR, because now I feel like I'm a part of it. Kathy Musty is ensuring a strong future for WBUR with her planned gift. It's so valuable, and I really want that money to do something good. I don't think of it as a gift to WBUR. I think of it as a gift to the entire Boston community. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. How does a country rebuild a democracy? Well, the answer in Poland is as quickly as it can. After a right-wing party spent eight years dismantling democratic institutions, a new government is now trying to resurrect them. NPR Berlin correspondent Rob Schmitz reports on the new government's plans to restore an independent judiciary. 
When the right-wing Law and Justice Party was voted into office eight years ago, it controlled the Polish government's legislative and executive branches. The only branch left standing in the way of its political agenda was the judiciary. The party went straight to work. First, it stacked Poland's constitutional court with loyal judges. Then, it took over the body charged with safeguarding the independence of the courts and appointing the nation's judges. And over several years, it appointed nearly 3,000 new judges in a process legal experts called unconstitutional. If any judges already in the system spoke out against these changes, the party created rules that would punish them. Warsaw Judge Igor Tulea was one of the first who spoke out. I was suspended for two years, but now I'm back, says Tulea, who was punished after he publicly requested the European Court of Justice intervene. It's a little surreal to be back in the courtroom, Tulea says. In my department, half of our 15 judges are newly appointed ones from the Law and Justice Party. After eight years of Law and Justice Party rule, 30 percent of Poland's judges are recent appointees appointed in what legal scholars call an unconstitutional process. This is just one of the many challenges facing Prime Minister Donald Tusk's new government as it attempts to undo the damage the Law and Justice Party inflicted on the judiciary. It turns out that defending the rule of law is easier than rebuilding it, says Tulea. Arkadiusz Mirsza, Deputy Minister of Justice, agrees. He and his colleagues are spearheading this democratic reconstruction. The damage the previous government inflicted on our legal system is a catastrophe. It runs deep on a systemic level. This is not a task that'll take months or a year. It's going to take an entire term of office to undo. Part of the problem, say legal experts, is that the very courts that determine whether a law is constitutional were subverted by the previous government in ways that were unconstitutional. These transformed courts now stand as a legal barrier to any further reform. It's Mirsha's job to find ways around these barriers. We cannot start with the assumption that things can't be changed or that there are too many traps that were created to prevent us from moving forward. We must have ideas for everything in order to repair these institutions. And we do this understanding that any new law, and in most cases that's what's needed, will be vetoed by the president. That's another barrier. President Andrzej Duda, an ally of the previous right-wing government, who's able to veto any bills aiming to restore the judicial system. Malgrazata Baproka, Secretary of State to President Duda, is one of his advisors. She says reversing the changes the Law and Justice Party made could be disastrous. For example, a proposal to remove the 3,000 judges appointed during Law and Justice's tenure could cause all sorts of legal problems. Try to imagine the consequences that would have for our citizens. It could undermine tens of millions of rulings they've made. The president, as the head of state and guardian of the Constitution, cannot allow such a gigantic crisis of the state and harm to the citizens. Deputy Justice Minister Mirsha says this is less about the judges themselves, but more about how they got to their positions. He says most of the judges are well-trained lawyers and will remain on the bench. He says repairing their nomination process so that it's constitutional is what the new government is after. And as for the president standing in the new government's way, he says next year there will be a presidential election that could solve that problem. Mirsha's boss, recently appointed Justice Minister Adam Bodnar, spoke to me last August while on the campaign trail about why this judicial overhaul is so important to Poland. 
I think that the most important is the signal that would be sent to both domestic and international audience that we obey the law, that we behave in a way that is in compliance with basic standards of a typical democratic country. If Poland sends that signal, says Bodnar, then it will be far easier to repair the country's democratic institutions because the most important objective, he said, is protecting and serving the constitution. Warsaw Judge Igor Telea agrees. From a legal perspective, he says, the way Bodnar and his team are moving forward is aggressive but effective. Finding loopholes in the law to repair the damage, then moving forward and then reassessing when there is either a judicial or presidential obstacle thrown in their path. This aggressive outside-the-box strategy to restoring democracy has been called the iron broom by observers. And Tulea says the survival of Poland's democracy depends on it. Tulea has done his part, too. During his two-year suspension, he traveled the country to speak to young people about the damage law and justice inflicted to Poland's democracy. His punishment made the 53-year-old judge a celebrity in Poland, a sort of judicial rock star. His face, which bears a resemblance to actor Willem Dafoe's, but framed by Clark Kent-style glasses, is graffitied across buildings in Warsaw and printed on T-shirts worn by activists. He's become an icon of Polish democracy. He was recently awarded Jurist of the Year by Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law. He says at first he found this fame paralyzing, but then he used it to publicize the fight for the rule of law. He says recently he was reminded of his celebrity inside the courtroom when a defendant whom he had just sentenced to prison pulled a magazine from his shirt. Tulea was on the cover, and the criminal asked for his autograph. Judge Tulea shook his head no and the police escorted the man to prison in accordance with the laws of Poland. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Warsaw. The country's two largest supermarket chains were hoping to unite. That's now up in the air after a lawsuit from federal regulators and nine state attorneys general. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. The Federal Trade Commission is suing to block Kroger's purchase of Albertsons. Kroger runs stores including Harris Teeter, Ralph's, and Fred Meyer. Albertsons owns Safeway and Vons. Together, they have 720,000 workers and about 5,000 locations. They overlap particularly in western states. California Attorney General Rob Bonta joined the federal suit. In many areas of Southern California, Kroger Albertsons would be the only one-stop shop for groceries. Regulators see the merger reducing competition, not only for shoppers, but also for workers, leading to higher prices and worse benefits. But Kroger and Albertsons argue they are not the colossus. It's really Walmart and Amazon, and the merger is critical to their ability to compete. The FTC's Rahul Rao disagrees. People are not shopping at Amazon as a substitute for going to their local grocery stores. Kroger and Albertsons had hoped to avoid the lawsuit by proposing to sell off hundreds of stores to essentially create a competitor to themselves. But the regulators say the plan falls short. We've seen grocery store divestitures in the past, and we've seen them fail spectacularly. Albertsons in 2015 sold off stores to get approval to buy Safeway, only to regain a bunch on the cheap when its buyer went bankrupt. Alina Seluch, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California or from all agents. 
From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From the Kaufman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Fine February day that feels more like springtime. 53 degrees now in Boston. Tonight, mainly clear skies, just below freezing. Tomorrow should turn gray through the day. Windy, about 54 degrees, just as warm as today was. Wednesday could bring some rain. This is WBUR. It's 4.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. More information has become known about the Alabama Chief Justice's ties to a far-right Christian nationalist movement. Tom Parker played a major role in the January 6th riot, and he quoted the Bible last week in a concurring opinion when the Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are children. It's Monday, February 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a baby in Gaza City died after going days without milk, and aid agencies warn of the risks of famine unless Israel permits much more aid to enter the territory at war. Upwards of 100,000 North Koreans have been sent to work in China in conditions of captivity. And Ronna McDaniel is stepping down as the chair of the Republican National Committee. He's putting a loyalist state chair in, a member of his family, and he's putting one of his top advisors as sort of a triumvirate to run the Republican Party going forward. These stories and more coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Supreme Court is wrestling with how much First Amendment protection to give big social media companies NPR's Gary Johnson reports the justices are evaluating state laws passed to limit censorship of conservative viewpoints. Florida and Texas passed new laws after big social media platforms booted former President Donald Trump following violence at the U.S. Capitol in 2021. The laws bar large sites from discriminating against users because of their viewpoints. Trade groups for the big platforms argue the government cannot compel them to speak and that they deserve lots of First Amendment protection because they curate and edit material like newspapers and bookstores do. The Biden administration is siding with the social media sites. At stake is how the biggest sites engage in content moderation to block hateful, offensive or violent information. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The Manhattan District Attorney is asking a judge to impose a gag order on former President Donald Trump. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports this comes ahead of Trump's hush money criminal case, which is set to get underway in New York City next month. 
Prosecutors cite Trump's longstanding history of making public and inflammatory remarks about people involved in his legal troubles. In this case, Trump is accused of falsifying business records as part of a cover-up to conceal hush money payments made to adult film star Stormy Daniels, which could have hindered his 2016 presidential campaign. Daniels alleges she had an affair with the former president, an allegation that Trump denies. If the judge approves the request, Trump would be barred from making or directing others to make statements about witnesses concerning their role in the case. Jury selection is scheduled to get underway on March 25th. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Forecasters are getting more bullish about the U.S. economy. NPR Scott Horsley reports on a new survey about the economic outlook. Business economists are feeling better about the U.S. outlook than they were just a few months ago. A new survey by the National Association for Business Economics finds, on average, forecasters now expect stronger economic growth, lower unemployment, and tamer inflation than they were projecting in their last survey. More than three out of four economists surveyed think the U.S. will achieve a hope-for soft landing this year, avoiding a recession even as prices come under control. AT&T is offering a $5 credit to customers affected by last week's telephone outage. The phone company says a coding error was behind the problem, which left some cell phone users without service for hours. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow was down 62 points to end at 39,069. NASDAQ down 20 points at 15,976. The S&P 500 down 19. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Moore Healy is increasing the pressure on financially troubled Steward Healthcare System to sell its nine hospitals and leave the state. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, Healy spoke today about Steward missing a key deadline. The governor ordered the for-profit hospital company to turn over audited financial information by Friday to show why it was missing payments to vendors and behind on rent. Stewart delivered some documentation but said it was waiting for the green light from auditors before releasing the rest. Healy now accuses Stewart of failing to fully respond because no auditor would sign off on Stewart's finances. Which says something about and speaks to the very thing that we have complained about for a long time, which is a house of cards and a charade that has put patients and providers and our, the stability of our market at risk. Stewart did not immediately respond to a request for comment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The co-chair of Harvard's anti-Semitism task force has resigned after just a month in the role. The university announced yesterday that Professor Raffaella Sadoun is stepping down. Harvard interim president Alan Garber said in a statement that Sadoun wanted to refocus her efforts on teaching at the Harvard Business School. She'll be replaced by law school professor Jared Ellis. New England Aquarium teams have spotted 31 North Atlantic right whales. They were last seen east of Chatham and Nantucket, feeding in an area that overlaps with shipping lanes in and out of Boston. Catherine McKenna is an assistant research scientist for the aquarium. She says it's unusual that they're on the surface in that area this time of year. It was unusual in the sense of the number of whales. Um, so we had 31, but earlier in the month there were um, upwards of 50 or more whales in that same area. And um, they've been surface feeding pretty much the whole time. McKenna says the Gulf of Maine is warming at one of the fastest rates in the world, and that could be affecting the whale's feeding supply. Scientists believe there are only about 350 North Atlantic right whales alive. 
In the forecast, overnight tonight should have clear, moonlit skies. Temperatures right about freezing. Tomorrow should be mostly cloudy, windy, just about 54 degrees, maybe a little bit of sunshine tomorrow. Then Wednesday reaching 56 degrees, rain likely on the way for midweek. This is WBUR, 53 degrees now at 507. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. It's been 10 days since Alabama's Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are considered children. Since then, there have been revelations about the religious beliefs of the chief justice of that court. NPR domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef is here with more. Hey, Odette. Hey, Elsa. So the chief justice in Alabama, his name's Tom Parker. I mean, he's been pretty open about how his interpretation of Christianity is important to his job as a judge, right? But I know that in your reporting, you have found that it goes way beyond that. Can you tell us how? Sure, yeah. You know, Christian theology is very evident in Justice Parker's work. You know, if you read, for example, the concurring opinion on the IVF ruling, it's notable to see that he quotes extensively from sources like the book of Genesis uh, from the Ten Commandments and from Western Christian thinkers of centuries ago, like Thomas Aquinas. You know, and that's a contrast to, for example, uh, citations from case study or legal precedent that, you know, one might expect when looking at the legal reasoning of a top judicial officer of a state. Right. But, you know, actually, this alone isn't what is drawing attention. On the very same day that the ruling came out, Parker was a guest on a podcast, and his remarks there suggest that his theology veers into what some experts consider Christian extremism. Wait, wait, what do you mean by Christian extremism? Well, here's a clip of Parker from that program. God created government. And the fact that we have let it go into the possession of others is heartbreaking for those of us who understand, and we know it is for him. And that's why he is calling and equipping people to step back into these mountains right now. And the key thing here, Elsa, is that reference to these mountains. Uh This is a reference to a strategy called the Seven Mountains Mandate um, that has become a kind of call to action for a segment of non-denominational charismatic Christians who were very influential in former President Donald Trump's base uh, and where some leaders played a significant role in the events of January 6th. Wow, this is the first I've heard of the Seven Mountains Mandate. Tell us more. What is it? So this is an idea that posits that Christians can uh, restore what they consider to be God's kingdom on earth by taking control of seven mountains or arenas in society. And those are family, religion, government, education, arts and entertainment, commerce, and media. I spoke with an expert on this, Elsa. His name is Matthew Taylor, and he's at the Institute for Islamic, Christian, and Jewish Studies in Baltimore. The Seven Mountains is a structured outline for Christian supremacy. The idea is that Christians should try to either personally uh, or support someone 
who can conquer that mountain and then have Christian influence flow down from these high places in society into the rest of society. So this is a theology that rejects separation of church and state, as we heard in the earlier clip of uh, Justice Parker on the podcast. And many see this as anti-democratic because it seeks uh, to assert the control of a minority of people over society, even though most Americans don't embrace that way of thinking. But that may not be true in Alabama, right? Because wasn't Parker elected? He was, you know, and I did reach out to the Supreme Court of Alabama to speak with Justice Parker. He didn't respond. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting because Taylor found that Parker's connections with this movement go, go back at least two decades. Mm -hmm. Back then, people may not have made much of those connections because this wing of conservative Christians was really fringe. Uh, this is a different time now with the influence of Donald Trump and their support for him. That is NPR's Odette Youssef. Thank you, Odette. Thank you. Since the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel, the Gaza Strip has been under Israeli siege. UN aid agencies say not enough aid is getting in and people are now starving. NPR correspondent Aya Batraoui reports on hunger in Gaza City. Destim Ahel is a young woman in Gaza City. Her father got food from an aid truck last week before the World Food Program suspended deliveries to northern Gaza after its trucks were mobbed by crowds so hungry they were eating the food as it fell off. Israeli tanks have also fired onto crowds of people waiting for aid in Gaza City, like the one Ahel's father stood in last week. He survived and secured a prized sack of flour. She was so excited. She sent me this voice note. Uh, we are happy just to have a flour. And just to have pizza, I will send you the photos just to know how awful, how we struggled just to have a normal food. Cheese and tomato sauce are expensive and hard to find in Gaza City, but her family managed to scrounge together the ingredients for the flour he got. We eat one meal in the day, and if there's food, you can eat one meal and a snack. The UN says Gaza is at risk of famine, and people are already dying. NPR obtained a video from a civil defense team in northern Gaza that shows an emaciated baby, pale-skinned, his mouth gaping open. He was rushed to Gaza City's Al Shifa Hospital, which is hardly functioning after it was raided by Israeli forces. A member of the rescue team says the baby died over the weekend of acute malnourishment. He'd gone days without milk. The boy's father cries over his son's tiny body. He says it's a sin what's happening to children, a sin. Ahl says her family and younger siblings survive off whatever they can find, including flour so old it's turned to pebbles. She sent me video of her family pounding it down. She says her family found the flour in a relative's bombed-out home in Gaza City, mixed with debris and dirt. Human Rights Watch says Israeli authorities are using starvation as a weapon of war. Israel says aid agencies in Hamas are to blame for the problems. Ahl says she feels trapped. You feel like you are in a prison, in a big prison, and also prisons, you have rights. Rights, she says, to be healthy and to be fed. Rights people in northern Gaza say they don't have. Aya Batraoui, NPR News. The chair of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, announced today that she will step down next week. It's not a surprise. She has been forecasting this for a while now. 
Donald Trump handpicked McDaniel for the job after she helped him win the swing state of Michigan in 2016. Now she seems to have fallen out of favor with the presumptive nominee. So what does her departure say about the state of the party? Josh Dossie of The Washington Post is here to help us answer that question. He has profiled Ronna McDaniel. It is good to have you back on All Things Considered, Josh. Thanks for having me. What are Trump's biggest complaints about Ronna McDaniel right now? There's a confluence of things that he's frustrated with with Ronna McDaniel. Uh, one is that he thinks she should have canceled the primary debates this fall. They had four debates with the other candidates. She tried to convince him these debates are not hurting you. In fact, they might be helping you, but he did not buy it. He, of course, didn't participate in any of those debates. That's correct. He also has been frustrated that she's not done enough to promote his false claims that the election was stolen in 2020. He believes that the RNC uh, should have spent more money and should have amplified more of his claims that year and that the party should be spending more money this year on quote-unquote election integrity efforts. What he wants to see is entire lawyers uh, across the country to get ready to challenge the results And Ronna McDaniel says she's done some of that, but Trump wants her to do more. And I think there's also been some concern about money. He doesn't have nearly as much money as the DNC and President Biden. RNC officials will say they've spent money in the past paying Trump's legal bills, which they have, and that some donors haven't given because of Trump, uh, which also is true. But the party is not in a great spot financially. So those are some of Trump's ideological complaints, some of his priorities. But part of the job of the RNC chair is to win elections. And Ronna McDaniel has held this post for four terms. What does her track record actually show? Well, the party has not had a great track record in winning elections. Trump won in 2016, and then McDaniel was put in place. Republicans lost in the midterms in 2018 by a large margin, lost the presidency in 20. The 2021 special elections in Georgia lost both Senate seats, lost the Senate. As you know, in 2022, they were predicting a red wave. That did not happen. Uh, So the results so far have not been great during her tenure. Now, what her defenders would say is that in a lot of those places, Trump was the one driving up Democrats to vote. But she's become sort of a familiar scapegoat for a lot of her critics, particularly folks who do not want to acknowledge maybe what Trump's role has been in some of these elections. Now, Trump has endorsed a slate of candidates to step into leadership positions at the RNC. Tell us about them and what they say about the direction the party may be going. Right. So the two most prominent folks that he has endorsed include his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, and Michael Watley, who he believes uh, has done more on, quote-unquote, election integrity efforts. He says, you know, the election in North Carolina was not stolen from me, as he has made all sorts of other false claims about stolen elections. And he wants to install one of his top aides, Chris Acevedo, as essentially the chief operating officer of the party. So what I think you can see is that he's trying to consolidate control over the Republican Party. He's putting a loyalist state chair in, he's putting a a member of his family, and he's putting one of his top advisors as sort of a triumvirate to run the Republican Party going forward as he becomes a nominee. When you look broadly at the arc of the Trump presidency, post-presidency campaign, is there a pattern here where somebody who was his very close aide, confidant, right-hand person suddenly gets kicked to the curb pretty unceremoniously? Yeah, it was sort of a trademark of his presidency, as you know, Ari, and this happened again throughout uh, his post-presidency. I mean, Ronald McDaniel was basically as subservient as you would want. She used to be known as Ronald Romney McDaniel. She dropped her name after he became president. She is the niece of Mitt Romney. Yes. She agreed to pay his legal bills. She moved RNC events to Mar-a-Lago. You know, Bill Palacucci, a member from New Jersey, said to me, She's kissed his butt for four years, but loyalty is a one-way street with Donald Trump. And I think what Palacucci says is what many people feel watching the situation is that for a long time, she sort of did 
almost whatever he wanted her to do, but it was never enough, you know, heading into 2024. That's Josh Dossie of The Washington Post. Thanks as always. Thanks. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here on this Monday afternoon at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Michigan's GOP is dealing with a challenge to its leadership over the alleged mishandling of party assets. And then at 544, film critic Bob Mandela's review of The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti plays a 1970s New England prep school teacher who has chosen to supervise students with nowhere to go over the Christmas holidays. Stay tuned for these stories and much more. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org summer. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? To this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. A dip for major stocks on Wall Street after some recent record gains. The Dow dropped nearly two-tenths of a percent today. S&P fell nearly four-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq was down about one-tenth of a percent. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley are joining a group of Democratic lawmakers who want to block the merger of Capital One and Discover. The companies announced the deal last week. It would create the biggest credit card issuer in the country as well as the sixth largest bank. Warren and Presley say the gargantuan deal would be bad for consumers and small businesses. They also want regulators to prevent similar-sized mergers in the future. Worcester Restaurant Week kicks off today. More than 30 businesses are offering three-course meals at about $30 apiece. Paul Giorgio runs the annual event. He says it's a big help for what is typically restaurants' slowest periods of the year. These are family businesses. They depend on customers coming in. And there's a great trickle-down effect, whether it's, you know, the restaurant owner, the wait staff, the valet parker, the uh, linen company, the food purveyors, the liquor companies. They all benefit from Worcester Restaurant Week. The event runs through March 9th, and Dine Out Week in Boston starts March 10th. The forecast is next. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuil.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. They will treat you like an insect. Those are the words of a North Korean woman in her 30s who has spent the past several years gutting fish at a plant in China, also being made to work late into the night, getting sores in her mouth from exhaustion, and being forced to have sex. She told her story to journalist Ian Urbina, who's written about it in The New Yorker, and who has documented how upwards of 100,000 North Koreans have been sent to work in China, often in conditions of captivity and despite the fact that this is illegal. Before we start, I do want to warn our listeners that we will be discussing 
sexual assault. Ian Urbina, welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, that number I just cited, 100,000 North Korean workers in China, that is per the U.S. State Department. Give us a sense of what kind of jobs they have been sent to do. Many of the workers are working in textile and garment factories, construction jobs, and also in seafood processing plants. Do they leave North Korea and go to China of their own free will? This is an elaborate state-to-state China-North Korean collaboration. It's sort of heavily regulated by the two governments. There's a lot of vetting on the North Korean side. You don't get to join this labor transfer program if you have um, any relatives who have ever defected or if you have anything on your record that might make the North Korean government worry that you might try to defect. And mostly these are women who get transferred into China for these jobs. Uh, and they're pretty sought after by North Koreans. I was because, gonna, you used the word yeah. get to join, this, is, which implies North Koreans want these jobs. Yeah, I mean, the you know, the wages that are on offer in China are an order of five to six times more than anything these women could earn in North Korea. Oftentimes, the women arrive and what they've been promised they don't receive. There are all sorts of hidden fees and then all sorts of uh, abuses that occur at the factories. And what's the attraction for China? This is cheap labor? Cheap labor, often in industries where they can't find workers. Okay. What about the fact I mentioned that this is not legal? It violates UN sanctions for Chinese companies to use North Korean labor. And these are sanctions that were imposed on grounds that the labor is forced, as you just told us, and that the salaries fund the regime back in Pyongyang. How does China get around that? Yeah, it's interesting, and especially so since the UN Security Council unanimously signed in 2017 these sanctions. So that means China was on board. And so that China... China signed them, yeah. You know, the sanctions are a flawed tool, and um, they're only as good as the enforcement of the state that's usually breaking them. And in this case, um, China typically looks the other way. And then if some Western media or whatever confronts them, um, they usually say the proof isn't, you know, solid and we don't believe it's really happening. Uh, so generally, they ignore uh, the sanctions on this issue. And as things have um, warmed between North Korea and China, um, they're ignoring them more and more. Hmm. Okay, I want to talk about the workers. And you were able to interview some of them. How? We assembled a team of investigators, all that specialize in talking to defectors, and then some of them actually have inroads into North Korea. We assembled a list of uh women, because all these are women who um, either presently are still in processing plants in China, or most of them are now back in North Korea. And then we figured out a method to have contacts in North Korea visit these women, typically in open spaces like parks or, you know, city streets or whatever, harder to surveil. And we conveyed the written set of questions to the contacts there. They asked the questions, transcribed all their answers, and then through encrypted apps, transmitted them back to us. And what did they tell you? What kind of conditions did these women describe? You know, these are sort of walled compounds, these plants typically, and the North Korean workers, the women, um, are kept very apart. Uh, They're very conspicuous, you know, Dandong residents, the city where many of these women are in China, um, often film them on the street because they stand out, they dress the same, they have minders that are herding them um, into the store. Uh, They're mostly not allowed to leave the compound. On The compounds, they sleep in big dorms, sometimes 30 to a room. These are locked facility guards at the gate. You know, the doors are always locked. You write that of the 20 workers you interviewed, 17 
describe being sexually assaulted? 17? Yeah, this was probably my biggest surprise because I, in all the things I'd read and all the people I talked to, I had not heard that. But when we asked, the women really opened up and described the tactics that were typically used to coerce um, sex, sometimes even forced into systematic prostitution for other folks at the plant, but uh, and violence, beatings, and these sorts of things, pretty brutal stuff. Mm. I mean, it sounds very difficult given the interview and reporting situation you were dealing with, but were you able to gauge their mental health, what the, what the long-term effects of this kind of labor would be on a person? No. You know, this is a snapshot in one moment with lots of layers of security. So you get little glimpses for which you could guess that this was probably pretty scarring, the way that the women described the sense of captivity. And remember, a lot of these women got trapped there. They expected a pretty hard go of a year, year and a half, two years. And then COVID happened. So some of them were stuck for four years. And sometimes those plants shut down because everything shut down in COVID. And so they were not just stuck there. They weren't even working and they didn't know when they were going to get home and they had no wage. A lot of them had taken loans out from loan sharks back to North Korea to pay bribes to get the jobs. So now their families were getting pressure by thugs back in North Korea. So real stress. There were several reports of suicides at some of the plants. We couldn't corroborate those. But um, if that's an indication, I think um, it was pretty brutal. Mm. Aside from the fact that we should all care as a basic matter of human dignity and and law, um, Americans have a stake in this because some of the seafood produced at plants where you were able to document these North Korean workers are working ends up in the U.S. Do we know how much? We found 15 plants. We identified over 1,000 workers, and these plants shipped to the U.S. and Europe, and big brands, you know, McDonald's, uh, Cisco. What kind of seafood? Like, what are we talking about? A lot of shellfish in this part, so clams, oysters, but also pollock, so that's your fish sticks at McDonald's, that kind of thing, Uh, squid, and um, also going to surprising places like U.S. military bases and public schools. And again, you know, that this isn't just a U.N. sanctions issue. There's a very strict U.S. law that says any product touched by North Korean workers is not allowed to come into the U.S. Did you reach out to any American companies, the ones that were implicated uh, in your reporting, and ask, do you know about this? Yeah, I mean, we spent six months reaching out to over 150 different companies, and, and most of them stonewalled us and just wouldn't engage. Um, a small portion did engage and said they were shocked to find out. Some of them very candidly engaged and said, look, China is a tough place to really know what's going on. Some companies, to their credit, severed ties to the plants immediately when we contacted them. When you say some some of the companies severed ties, which ones? Several. One was Trident, and that's a company that, for example, supplies McDonald's. Another was Cisco, the world's largest food company, and then a Canadian company called Highliner. All very big companies immediately said they're going to pause any imports until they can investigate. Ian Urbina, his New Yorker piece is headlined, Invisible Workers. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Every morning this week on WBUR, we're visiting news deserts in Super Tuesday states. Tomorrow, how voters in a small Texas town make their election decisions when they have no source of news. 
Listen tomorrow and every morning this week at 8.50 here at 90.9 WBUR. few clouds around tonight, 32 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, a little sun, but a lot of clouds staying mild. Temperatures in the mid-50s. 50 degrees now in Boston at 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by German International School Boston's Fast Track. Accelerated language learning for students new to German. Virtual Info Night Wednesday. GISBOS.org. Texas and President Biden's administration are fighting over access to a park on the southern border. Activists are questioning the park's name. Because it should not be named after coward and traitor. Shelby Park and the Confederacy, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The chair of the Republican National Committee says she plans to step down next week after the Super Tuesday primaries. NPR Sarah McCammon tells us Donald Trump is putting pressure on the party to wrap up the presidential primary process, having won each GOP contest he's entered. In a statement released by the RNC, Ronna McDaniel calls serving as chairwoman an honor and privilege and says she will step down on March 8th, quote, to allow our nominee to select a chair of their choosing. That move will come just days after Super Tuesday on March 5th, when former President Trump appears poised to sweep several more state nominating contests. McDaniel has led the RNC since 2017 and was re-elected last year, but she's faced increasing attacks from far-right leaders within the party, some of whom have criticized the current RNC leadership as ineffective. Trump recently announced his endorsement of a slate of new candidates for top positions at the RNC, including his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, for co-chair. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Hungary's parliament has approved Sweden's bid to join NATO, clearing the way for the Nordic nation's ascension to the military alliance after two years of intense negotiations. Unanimous support is required to admit new countries, and as NPR's Rob Schmitz tells us, Hungary is the last of NATO's 31 members to give its backing. Getting this approval from the Hungarian parliament was the final hurdle for Sweden joining NATO. Of the 194 members of parliament who voted, just six rejected Sweden's accession. Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson said on X shortly after the vote that Sweden stands ready to shoulder its responsibility for Euro-Atlantic security. Sweden will become NATO's 32nd member, and it follows Finland, which became a member last year. Both Sweden and Finland applied to join in 2022 following Russia's full-scale invasion of neighboring Ukraine, an assault by Moscow that was purportedly intended. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. President Biden met with congressional leaders today in an effort to avoid a partial shutdown of the federal government later this week. Funding expires Friday for the Transportation Department and some other agencies. That could affect some housing, food, and veterans programs. Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss told CNN today that he blames infighting by House Republicans for the looming shutdown. They remain the odd man out on this. So if they want to govern like grown-ups, then we have no issue. We have the deal that passed Congress. But if they want to have a tantrum at the negotiating table, then we're heading towards a shutdown. An effort to avoid a shutdown fell through yesterday over Republican policy demands on issues that include abortion and security concerns on immigration. The U.S. Air Force member who died protesting the war between Israel and Hamas has ties to Massachusetts. 25-year-old Aaron Bushnell was a student at Nauset Public Schools off and on between 2003 and 2014. 
He died by suicide yesterday outside the Israeli embassy. NASA school officials tell the Boston Globe that the school community is saddened by his death and offered condolences to his family. A 50-year-old man is suing the state for $1 million over a wrongful conviction. James Lucian spent 27 years in prison for a drug-related murder in Roxbury he did not commit. His conviction was thrown out in 2021, and he was set free. Lucian's lawyers argued in a complaint filed Friday that Boston police officers provided false testimony and tainted evidence. There's been no response yet from the city or the state. A fleet of three newly designed community care vans from Mass General Brigham are on the streets in greater Boston. The vans replace converted buses used to, to give out COVID vaccines. Dr. Priya Saran Gupta says that the pandemic stabilized. The hospital system looked to see what other conditions needed addressing in marginalized communities. As we looked at the data, what emerged was cardiometabolic conditions, so health conditions related and connected to high blood pressure and diabetes, and then separately, substance use disorders. She says that Mass General Brigham is working with community partners that have a strong relationship with people to decide where the vans should go. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Marsh Chapel, presenting the acclaimed writer David Gran, February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Sci Center. Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgranbu.eventbrite.com. Clear to partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, down around freezing. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine warm again. Temperatures in the mid-50s could have showers and fog move in on Wednesday. Temperatures in the upper 50s. 50 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Voting closes in Michigan's presidential primary tomorrow. Republicans are choosing between former President Trump and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. But tomorrow's winner only determines a fraction of the state's Republican Party delegates. Because on Saturday, there will also be a Republican state caucus. And to explain why, we're joined now by Michigan Public Radio Network's Rick Pluta. Hey, Rick. Hi, Elsa. Hey. Okay, so why are Michigan Republicans voting in a primary tomorrow and also in a caucus on Saturday? Well, because Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer and the Michigan legislature's Democratic majorities wanted to move the state's presidential primary closer to the front of the calendar, an early win for Biden, more influence for the state. Uh That put the Michigan GOP in a corner because the early primary violates the RNC calendar. That would cost them Michigan delegates at the national convention. Democrats treated that as not our problem. So (laughs) state Republicans developed a workaround that satisfies national party rules by creating this primary caucus hybrid. Oh, a primary caucus hybrid. Okay, so then how does the distribution of delegates work? 
Well, so the Michigan Republicans have 55 national convention delegates. 16 will be chosen tomorrow in the primary, which is an open primary. That means any Michigan voter can participate. Enter Christina Caramo, a party chair who said that would let people in who are rhinos, Republicans in name only, and they'll have a big voice in choosing the nominee. In a plower in a power play, she said, well, let's have these closed party caucuses that will shut out anyone but declared party members who go through the hassle of traveling to caucuses and hanging out till they're done. So the other 39 delegates will be chosen at these party caucuses this coming Saturday. Huh, okay. And tell us more about what to expect out of those Saturday caucuses. Well, there'll be drama. The Michigan Republican Party heads into the primary and caucuses during this bitter leadership fight. There will be two caucus sites actually on Saturday because there are two competing factions saying they're the real Republicans. One caucus in Detroit, the other on the other side of the state in Grand Rapids. <laughs> Donald Trump says the Grand Rapids convention organized is organized by the legitimate Republican Party. That is being led by former Congressman Pete Hoekstra. He was named by a faction of the Michigan GOP to replace Christina Caramo. But Caramo says that even Trump has been duped by rhinos. She insists that she represents the real Trump Republicans. Here she is on her weekly podcast. The reason why we're experiencing all these problems in our party is because of the lack of virtue in our country. But many longtime Republicans say Karamo's been a fundraising disaster. The party's bank account is pretty much empty. She tried to sell the state party headquarters, found she couldn't, and tried running things out of her condo. Wow, so much drama and infighting. How will uh -huh. all of this be settled, do you think? So there's a court case regarding who controls the state party's bank accounts and other assets. This is a controversy Republicans don't need in a critical swing state, went for Trump in 2016, Joe Biden in 2020. Almost certainly in the end, the Trump hookstra faction will win since Trump pretty much runs the show. But this is really almost a look ahead to what the future fight for power will look like in the Michigan Republican Party. That is Rick Pluta of Michigan Public Radio Network. Thank you so much, Rick. You bet. And meanwhile, at last weekend's Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, there was little question that Donald Trump will again lead the Republican ticket. So the intrigue turned to his likely running mate, and several contenders had prime speaking slots. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on the tryouts for Trump's vice president. It was a full ballroom when the South Dakota governor, Kristi Noem, took the stage. Good afternoon, CPAC. Grace Germany was among those who were moved by the governor's star power. I mean, look at her. We're all jealous of her. She's gorgeous with that hair and her eyes. Germany traveled from Austin, Texas, to attend the conference just outside of Washington, D.C. As a former business manager, Germany says she tends to prefer those with an economic background. But she likes Noem's experience as a farmer and that she's proven herself as a governor. So I always tell people, don't listen to what people say in politics. Check the record, not the rhetoric. Nome was one of the first of the contenders to address the adoring crowd. She didn't waste time reminding them where her allegiances are. I was one of the first people to endorse Donald J. Trump to be our next president. Last year, when everyone was asking me if I was going to consider running for president, I said, no. Why would you run for president if you can't win? 
Always the showman Trump has invited the speculation, talking about it on the campaign trail and stoking it for fundraising. I mean, Donald Trump is watching, he is listening, he's looking at people's reactions. Brian Lanza, a former Trump aide who remains in close contact with the campaign, likened the competition to Trump's former reality show. This is like The Apprentice. You, you've got to go front and center and make your case. The organizers of CPAC stirred up the Veep stakes. This year, they featured a question on their popular straw poll about who should be Trump's running mate and made sure to give top contenders chances to speak. Back up, folks. Back up, folks. Back up, folks. Contenders like Congresswoman Elise Stefanik was shadowed by a swarm of fans and photographers between interviews. Once on stage, Stefanik embraced the traditional attack role of vice presidential candidates, going after prosecutors who have filed charges against Trump. They indicted him four times for non-crimes and are trying to bankrupt him and destroy his successful business. One of the more intriguing names being discussed this year is former Democratic Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. On stage, Gabbard made a point to attack and tried to turn the tables on her old party, who largely see Trump as a threat to democracy. Our democracy is under attack. The perpetrators of this attack are those who, in the name of saving our democracy, are destroying it. Another contender, former presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, spoke at CPAC's Ronald Reagan dinner, where he brought his familiar fiery rhetoric. What does it mean to be an American? He used it to stoke Trump's calls for a war against the so-called deep state, which Ramaswamy said should include shutting down the FBI, the CDC, the Department of Education, and 75% of the federal workforce. If the next U.S. president, Donald Trump, can't work for you all for more than eight years, neither should those federal bureaucrats reporting into him either. Trump's pollster Jim McLaughlin took the stage at the end of the conference. Along with CPAC chairman Matt Schlapp and Trump's former chief of staff, Steve Bannon, to announce the results of the straw poll. This was the fun one. It might McLaughlin be built up the anticipation, making the crowd wait to hear the results about who should run shotgun with Trump. All right, who do you think? It's a tie. It's a tie. Christy Nome at 15. Vivek Ramaswamy, 15, Tulsi Gabbard, 9. A tie between Christy Nome and Vivek Ramaswamy. Further down, Stefanik got 8. Senator Tim Scott, who was campaigning in South Carolina, also got 8. And while the CPAC straw poll is no crystal ball, it can reflect the direction that Trump's most loyal supporters want him to take. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Oxon Hill, Maryland. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It has been almost two decades since director Alexander Payne and actor actor Paul Giamatti drank their way through Santa Barbara wine country. That was in their Oscar-nominated comedy Sideways. Their newest movie together, The Holdovers, has Giamatti playing a grouchy prep school teacher who also does a bit of drinking. And both the film and Giamatti are up for Oscars this year. We'll find out on March 10th if either wins. And in the meantime, here's critic Bob Mondello with his original review of The Holdovers. 
You know those movies about inspirational teachers? Paul Giamatti's Mr. Hunnam is kind of going for the opposite effect. We meet him in 1970, spreading Christmas cheer by returning graded exams as parents wait in Barton Academy's courtyard to spirit their sons away on break. Lots of D-minuses and F-pluses. I can tell by your faces that many of you are shocked at the outcome. I, on the other hand, am not, because I have had the misfortune of teaching you this semester and I witness firsthand your glazed, uncomprehending expressions. Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. No, it's... Uh, I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. I'm supposed to go to Cornell. Unlikely. Hunnam's got just one friend at Barton, the cafeteria manager, played by Divine Joy Randolph, who will be spending her first Christmas since the death of her son cooking for the holdover boys who don't have anywhere to go for the holidays. Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? It's his punishment for failing a legacy student the previous semester and creating problems for the headmaster. Initially, there are several boys in his care, but it eventually comes down to just Angus Tully, his best student, played by sad-eyed newcomer Dominic Sessa. He's a bratty, privileged kid who knows how to push all of Hunnam's buttons. I thought all the Nazis were hiding in Argentina. Stifle it, Tully. He's been kicked out of several schools already, and Hunnam, sipping Jim Beam and fuming, bristles at the entitlement Angus clearly takes for granted. You think I want to be babysitting you? No, I was praying your mother would pick up the phone or your father would arrive in a helicopter or a flying saucer. My father's to take dead. You that leaves Mary to be the adult in the room. You don't tell a boy that's been left behind at Christmas that nobody wants him? What's wrong with you? Aware of the arc this sort of story here, usually right? takes, the director heads off in other directions. Normally, this exchange, for instance. I don't think I've ever had a real family Christmas like this before. Thank you, Mary. You're welcome. Would lead to a thaw. Here, it leads to an argument, and another and another, with student and teacher baiting each other, even at moments when they seem to be reaching common ground. Okay. All right, now your turn. Go ahead. Tell me something about me. Something negative. Something negative about you? Sure. Just one thing. Just one. Director Alexander Payne hasn't just made a movie set in the 1970s. He's done his best to make a 1970s movie. A longtime advocate for film preservation, he begins with vintage film company logos and uses filters to make the images look like they were shot on celluloid back then. His story is concerned with social issues, class, race, entitlement, and centered on character, outcasts of the sort that used to grace films like Harold and Maude. I find the world a bitter and complicated complicated place, and it seems to feel the same way about me. I think you and I have this in common. The result is a film that honors folks who've all but given up on themselves at what's supposed to be the happiest time of year, which is to say it's a classic Christmas movie narrative. To those who say they don't make them like they used to, the holdovers holds over the way they used to. I'm Bob Mandela. Let me sleep in the slum of tomorrow. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 15 minutes. The Supreme Court, social media, and the First Amendment. In sports, at spring training in Florida today, Red Sox beat the Phillies 7-6. Bruins play tonight. You'll have to stay up late, though, if you want to watch. They're in Seattle to take on the Kraken. Puck drop is at 10 p.m. This is the last game of their four-city road trip out west. This is WBUR.
WBUR supporters include the Umbrella Arts with The Minutes, a small-town city council meeting unravels in Tracy Lutz's darkly comic mystery. Opens Friday, theumbrellaarts.org. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Moonlit skies tonight, some clouds around. Temperatures about freezing. Tomorrow, a blend of clouds and sunshine should be warm again. Temperatures in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. Boston is known for many things. Sports, the American Revolution, esteemed universities. But what does it really mean to live here? For WBUR's Field Guide to Boston, we heard from residents about moments that made them love this city. I once saw a guy trip while running for an orange line train, and his Charlie card and IDs flew like frisbees in every direction. I slid my foot between the doors to hold it open. Another guy helped the man get up. A woman in hospital scrubs collected the contents of his wallet. I grew up hearing everything from R&B, soul, jazz, Boston, space funk, house, or rap blaring out of boomboxes, cars, windows, and storefronts. One of their chefs would chat with me in Vietnamese, addressing me as younger sister. I called him older brother. To hear more love letters to Boston and to share your own, check out WBUR.org slash field guide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Brazil's former far-right president now has the photo op he was hoping for. Tens of thousands of supporters of ex-president Jair Bolsonaro filled blocks of a major boulevard in the country's largest city yesterday. It was the biggest demonstration Brazil's conservatives have mustered since Bolsonaro backers stormed the capital more than a year ago. And as NPR's Kerry Kahn reports, it comes at a critical moment for this movement. Protesters dressed in yellow and green, Brazil's national soccer team's colors stretch down Sao Paulo's iconic Paulista Avenue. Eu vim apoiar ao Brasil e o Bolsonaro, ele é Brasil. Tania Colbacchini came to support Brazil and the former president. Jair Bolsonaro is Brazil, she says. Many in the crowd wave Brazilian flags or drape them over their shoulders. Some sport green hats reading in English, make Brazil great again. Bolsonaro likes everything that is right, adds the 64-year-old civil engineer, who says the left in Brazil is destroying the country and the world. Many in the crowd also carry Israeli flags, protesting recent comments by President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who equated Israel's war in Gaza to Hitler's killing of Jews. Stepping up to address the massive crowd, Bolsonaro unfurled a huge Israeli banner. You, the people of Brazil, you don't deserve living through these times, says Bolsonaro, who insists he's being persecuted. He's facing multiple investigations, including criminal allegations he plotted a coup, which he vehemently denies. A coup is tanks on the streets, weapons, conspiracy. Nothing like that happened in Brazil, he says. Bolsonaro called his supporters to the streets as the federal probe gains momentum. Several close aides were arrested earlier this month and Bolsonaro had his passport confiscated. Concern is growing among conservatives about the future of Brazil's right, especially if Bolsonaro goes to jail. At this moment, I can't 
Imagine a right wing organized without Bolsonaro. David Magallones is an international relations professor at Sao Paulo's Catholic University. He says Brazil's political landscape is more fractious than the U.S., where Donald Trump has a strong party backing him, unlike Bolsonaro. In Brazil, you don't have the, the, such a party. So in absence of this party, the Bolsonaro emerged as a um, charismatic leader. It's unclear if there is another in the wings. Several are talked about, including a young congressman with a large TikTok following, Bolsonaro's wife, who is popular with his evangelical base, and the governor of influential Sao Paulo state, Tarcísio de Freitas. He's a trusted technocrat who's actually served in both left and right governments. With strong military ties, another key conservative constituency. Over the weekend, Gifreitas visited a prep school for military cadets in Campinas. Gifreitas declined NPR's request for an interview. He did briefly address yesterday's big crowd, praising his, quote, friend Bolsonaro for showing us the fight for family freedom in the homeland. The only thing we can do is give thanks to Bolsonaro, he says, to great applause. But Givretis is seen more as a pragmatic politician. He was recently criticized for shaking hands with President Lula, and many believe he doesn't have the charisma needed to unite Brazil's disparate conservatives. But 22-year-old Alice Rodriguez says it doesn't matter. She'll follow whoever takes up the rights banner. I hope we never get silence. Uh, I hope like we keep fighting. We can never give up. Never, she says. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Sao Paulo. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Ben Gomes. A few years ago, Gomes received an upsetting call at work. The caller told him that his 92-year-old mother was being rushed to the hospital after she had been dragged by a car in the street. Well, he raced to the hospital to see her. I have to admit, I was terrified of what might have happened to her. I feared that she might have been really severely injured. She is an old lady and quite fragile to begin with. So the notion that she might be dragged by a car was just completely horrifying to me. And it seems that what had happened was that, you know, she used to get a ride from volunteer drivers who would take her to the senior center. And the driver had dropped her off, and she was wearing this jacket that had long uh, pull strings at the bottom of the jacket. And as she closed the door, one of the pull strings from the jacket got caught in the door. And so the car started driving away, and she started running alongside the car, knocking on the door, on the window of the car to try and get the driver's attention. And he continued driving, and she could neither extract the jacket string, nor could she stop the car. And at that point, it seems like somebody saw her from across the street and ran across the street, got in front of the car, and banged on the hood of the car to stop the driver. And she fell at this point. And I guess that's what caused her to break a hip. You know, a broken hip is no joke. 
But I'm so incredibly grateful that I was not greeted by the sight that I so feared when I went to the hospital. I, I, I can't bear to think of like how that would have even come to an end. It, it's just too horrifying for me to think of. I am just so incredibly grateful to this person for what they did. We say words like thank you all the time to the point where they don't necessarily encompass what this kind of gratitude might mean. But I don't know, I don't know if I'd have better words to say than thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for what you did for my mother and for what you did for me. Ben Gomes lives in Palo Alto, California. His mom recently celebrated her 96th birthday with her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You can find more stories like this one on the My Unsung Hero podcast. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks, at ProgressiveCommercial.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. A few fair weather clouds around tonight. Not too chilly, about 32 degrees. Tomorrow should be partly sunny, still warm in the mid-50s again. Clouds winning out by the end of the day tomorrow. And then Wednesday, rainy, windy, and warm in the upper 50s. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Supreme Court today questions the laws Florida and Texas have passed that prohibit social media platforms such as Facebook and TikTok from deciding whether to display certain viewpoints, including hate speech and election misinformation. It's Monday, February 26th, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, tomorrow is primary day in Michigan, and a growing number of Democrats plan to protest President Biden's handling of the war in Gaza by voting uncommitted. We are hoping this uncommitted movement will allow this administration to course correct and shift their policymaking. 
Also ahead, the film Oppenheimer leads the pack in the Oscar nominations. It has 13, many in the technical categories. So we're taking a look at some of the people behind the most evocative scenes in the film. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden heads to Brownsville, Texas Thursday in a trip meant to highlight what he's trying to do about the influx of asylum seekers at the border. NPR's Mara Eliason reports he'll meet with Border Patrol agents, law enforcement and local officials. Bipartisan legislation aimed at reducing the number of migrants and the backlog of asylum hearings stalled in Congress after Donald Trump told Republicans not to pass anything that might help solve the problem at the border and possibly help Biden in the election. The border has become a major issue in the presidential election, with Republicans getting a big political advantage. A recent NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll shows that only 29 percent of respondents approve of Biden's handling of immigration. In Texas this week, Biden is expected to call on Republicans in Congress to approve more funding for the border. He's also considering issuing an executive order, but the White House says no decisions have been reached yet on what, if anything, Biden could do on his own to address the problem. Mara Eliasson, NPR News, the White House. An active-duty U.S. airman who set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. this weekend has died. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports he was protesting Israel's war on Hamas in Gaza. Aaron Bushnell had served in the Air Force nearly four years, most recently as an IT engineer, according to his LinkedIn profile. On Sunday afternoon, he filmed himself walking in uniform toward the gate of the Israeli embassy, saying he was about to make an extreme protest against Israel's actions in Gaza. He then doused himself with fuel and lit himself on fire, yelling free Palestine several times before falling to the ground. D.C. emergency services transported him to the hospital where he died this morning. Self-immolation as a political statement has a long history, including anti-Vietnam War protests in the U.S. Active duty personnel are not supposed to engage in political acts. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. A Houston-based company says it's receiving data and images from a probe it landed last week on the moon's surface. As NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, the probe did land successfully, but it fell over on touchdown. The robotic lander called Odysseus touched down to within just a mile of its intended site near the lunar south pole, according to Intuitive Machines, the company that built the lander. Intuitive Machines also posted pictures from the probe's descent to the surface on social media. Shortly after landing on the moon, Odysseus unexpectedly tipped onto its side. Because of its position and changing lighting conditions, mission controllers say they only expect to be able to operate for another day or so before Odysseus's solar panels lose power. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 62 points. The Nasdaq down 20 points. The S&P 500 down 19. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healy is calling the financial operations of Stewart Healthcare a charade and a house of cards. The for-profit company has said its money troubles are jeopardizing the operations of its nine Massachusetts hospitals. Last week, Healy said that Stewart failed to supply adequate financial documents that she had requested. This afternoon, she blamed the management of Stewart Healthcare for the company's financial problems. It frankly disgusts me, as I've spoken to earlier, uh, the fact that uh, a particular CEO came and chose to do what it appears he did in terms of how he ran operations and put patients and providers and our communities at risk. 
Stewart said last week it does not have all the information Healy asked for. The governor says she wants Stewart to stop doing business in Massachusetts. Encore Boston Harbor is facing $40,000 in fines for accepting bets on college games illegally. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission says Encore accepted bets on two Boston College women's basketball games last year. Bets on Massachusetts college teams are only allowed if the teams are in a tournament. An Encore spokesperson says they'll adhere to the decision. State officials say more than 325,000 people have already cast a ballot ahead of next week's presidential primary. That's more than 6% of registered voters. Data from the Secretary of State's office show 310,000 mail-in ballots have been returned. Another 15,000 people voted early in person over the weekend. The state's presidential primary is March 5th. Traffic is slower than usual along 95 south in Waltham. That's because two lanes are closed at Route 20, so crews can fix a giant pothole on a bridge. Right now, there's a five-mile backup starting at Route 2A. Again, that's on 95 south. State transportation officials say the lane closures should last through the evening commute. And Brookline is celebrating award-winning poet and Brookline native Amy Lowell. Tonight, the Brookline Village Library will celebrate her life and work with a video and readings of her poems by the town's poet laureate and some residents. Amanda Hurst is Brookline's library director. She says Lowell was well-educated, though she never attended college. Most of Amy's poetry is associated with the Imagist movement. And um, she is known for writing some romantic poetry as well. Amy Lowell was born in Brookline in February 1874 and died in 1925. She posthumously won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1926. 49 degrees now in Boston tonight, mainly clear skies just below freezing. Tomorrow should have sun and clouds taking turns. Clouds, though, winning out by the end of the day. Should be windy, right about 54 degrees. 49 degrees in Boston. The time is 6.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The First Amendment was back at the Supreme Court today. At issue was free speech on big social media platforms. Social media companies sued Texas and Florida over state laws that limit the site's ability to moderate content. How the justices rule could change the way these platforms operate. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson watched the arguments at the court, and she is here now in the studio. Hey, Carrie. Hi, Ari. Tell us about how these laws in Florida and Texas came to be. State officials in Texas and Florida said these big sites had been silencing conservative voices. They passed these laws after former President Donald Trump was kicked off sev- several platforms following the violence at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. And these laws bar the big platforms from discriminating against people because of their viewpoint. They also require sites to give individual explanations for blocking or booting people. Attorney Henry Whitaker argued for the Florida law. He said these social media platforms only act on a tiny part of the material they host on their sites. Then Justice Elena Kagan jumped in. You know, the one percent that's like, we don't want anti-vaxxers on our site or we don't want insurrectionists on our site. I mean, that's what motivated these laws, isn't it? And that's what's getting people upset about them. 
Justice Kagan says the problem is there's disagreement about what constitutes misinformation about things like voting and health. And which social media platforms are covered by these laws and how did they respond in court today? That's actually an open question about how many sites these laws cover. It seems like YouTube, Facebook and Instagram count, but many of the justices across ideological lines really struggled with whether the driving app Uber might be included or e-commerce sites where people buy things, Venmo, and if so, how that might change their legal analysis. Attorney Paul Clement argued for the trade associations challenging these laws. He encouraged the justices to focus on the very biggest platforms and the stakes for them. If this statute goes into effect, we'd sort of have to fundamentally change our business models. So, you know, what, what we might do in the interim, at least some of these companies might do, is, you know, just like, well, let's do only puppy dogs, at least in Florida, until we can get this straightened out. You know, Carrie, there's so much precedent for the Supreme Court ruling on the First Amendment, but not a ton for social media sites and Internet speech. So how deeply did the justices dig into the history here? They really did dig in. You know, the social media companies say the kind of arranging and curating they do is an editorial judgment that deserves a lot of First Amendment protection, like a newspaper does, gets. But but lawyers for Florida and Texas say the big platforms are more like phone companies or like UPS. They connect calls or drop off parcels, but they don't speak themselves. Justice Samuel Alito says neither of those analogies really worked or sounded right to him. He says the Internet is different than a newspaper. There's no space limit, for one thing. The social media platforms say that makes content moderation and blocking all the more important because otherwise these platforms are going to be filled with garbage or hate speech and users can't find what they want to see there. The Republican-led states that passed these laws say that the social media companies engaged in a form of censorship. Did the justices engage with that idea today? There was a lot of discussion of this. Justices Clarence Thomas and Alito seemed to take issue with what the platforms call content moderation. It was kind of a euphemism for censorship, they said. But Justice Brett Kavanaugh took a really different view. He says only the government engages in censorship. When a private company decides what to include or exclude, that usually gets first Amendment protection, he said. And the Chief Justice, John Roberts, says it matters whether it's the government or a private business making those big decisions about content. So in just a sentence or two, any sense of how the court might rule here? You know, they seem to be thinking out loud about how far they want to go. The laws in Florida and Texas have been blocked at an early stage. Lots of questions about how these laws might work in practice for some of the smaller social media platforms. But the Solicitor General encouraged the justices to leave that for another day and another case, not this one. (laughs) That's NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you. My pleasure. Michigan's presidential primary is tomorrow. It's a state that President Biden won by less than three percentage points in 2020. And some Democratic voters who were part of Biden's winning coalition back then say they are unsure about him now. One big factor is Israel's war in Gaza in response to the October 7th attacks by Hamas. That war has now killed almost 30,000 Palestinians. And the issue is fueling a growing campaign powered by young voters to vote uncommitted in tomorrow's primary. NPR's Elena Moore reports. At a coffee shop in Hamtramck, a small city with a large Arab and Muslim population near Detroit, State Representative Abraham Ayash thinks back to his start in politics. Actually, it's a little up the street, the UAW hall, where I started doing my work uh, for the Obama campaign. So He was 13 then. Now, he's the majority floor leader in the Michigan House. 
Ayash, whose family is from Yemen, is one of several young elected leaders supporting the Listen to Michigan campaign, a pledge to vote uncommitted in the primary unless President Biden calls for an immediate and permanent ceasefire in Gaza and halts additional aid to Israel. You can't come out and enthusiastically support any candidate who's not listening to your concerns when you've done all the things that you were under you understood to believe were how you organize in a democracy. 24-year-old State Representative Alabas Farhat represents portions of Detroit and Dearborn, another prominent city that has a sizable Arab and Muslim population. To Farhat, who is Lebanese-American, it's notable there are Gen Z and millennial elected officials in this fight. We do not want to continue to be a part of a generation of voters, a generation of Americans who continues to hand off the country to the next generation at a state of war. And while elected leaders may be amplifying the movement, it's a campaign created and led by young organizers in the area. We're experiencing a revolution. And That's 31-year-old Lexis Zaydan, a Palestinian-American from Dearborn who is a spokeswoman and lead organizer for the Listen to Michigan campaign. You're going to have your older generation that might still understand or believe in this two-party system, but you're also having younger voters that are trying so many different strategies and ways to just try. Like, what can we do to try to upend the, the current electoral system and let elected officials know that we're not settling for this anymore? The goal of the campaign is to get upwards of 10,000 write-in votes because that was the margin former President Trump won by in 2016. It's much less, though, compared to Biden's margin in 2020, when he received 150,000 more votes. In a statement to NPR, a Biden campaign spokesperson stressed that the president is working hard to earn every vote in Michigan. But despite starting within the Arab community, organizers stress the movement is now multi-faith, multi-race, and multi-generational. 24-year-old Michaela Stevens, who identifies as mixed race, and 23-year-old Paris Pittman, who is black, sit together outside a bagel shop on a windy morning in Detroit. I think what's like important is just kind of letting that community know that that they do have allies. I wouldn't say like we're just the same but we have a lot of common things so we need to be there for each other because this could be us too. This was us. Stevens and Pittman are both considering voting uncommitted on Tuesday because of Gaza vote and a general dissatisfaction with Biden. Vote uncommitted. At an uncommitted rally in Hamtramck just days before the election, 30-year-old Nada Mahmoud gets emotional thinking about why she's there. I'm feeling like anguish over what we've been seeing online and like it just you want to do as anything you can, anything in your power. This is the minimum that we can do. That's the voice of 28-year-old Palestinian organizer Dima Hassan. Tuesday's election has an even added weight for her. It marks the first time she's able to vote since becoming a citizen. I feel powerful, you know, um, because my whole life I got to watch what's happening and have no say in it. And this is... This is the first time that I get to have a say and I get to go Voters like Hassan have to vote by Tuesday, but they hope to wake up Wednesday having sent a strong message about their political power to the White House. Elena Moore, NPR News, Hamtramck, Michigan. The death of a non-binary teenager the day after a fight at an Oklahoma high school has prompted vigils throughout the country. Max Bryan with member station KWGS in Tulsa was at the vigil in the student's hometown last night. And we'll note that in this report, a lawmaker appears to denigrate transgender people. Hundreds of people gathered holding candles at a park in the small Oklahoma town of Owasso. 
I want to thank everybody for coming. I think it means a lot that so many people showed up from our community to honor this life. They were there to honor Nex Benedict, a 16-year-old student who died earlier this month the day after a fight in a school bathroom. Police say preliminary results show Benedict did not die of trauma, but the student told officers at the hospital that three girls beat them on the floor until they blacked out, and that the girls had picked on them for how they dressed. Student Robin Ingersoll, who had dated Benedict, described them as someone with a tough exterior but a big heart. We could all learn how to be better so something like this doesn't happen again. We could all grow for next. At least seven vigils were held for Benedict throughout Oklahoma, a state that has seen increasingly hostile rhetoric against LGBTQ people. The state also passed a bill requiring students to use school bathrooms that correlate with their birth sex. When asked Friday about how the rhetoric and bills affect a situation like Benedict's, Republican State Senator Tom Woods said his heart goes out to the situation, but then he said this. We are a religious state. Uh, we're going, we are going to fight to keep that bill out of the state of Oklahoma because we're a Christian state. The comments sparked a sharp reaction in Oklahoma. A speaker at a vigil in nearby Tulsa said Woods doesn't understand real filth because he doesn't look in the mirror. But in Owasso, the speakers mostly remembered Benedict's life. Anna Richardson, an Owasso high school parent who organized the event, said she wanted students to have a safe place to grieve and remember their peer. I hope people come away from this knowing that it's okay to be different and that you're accepted here in our local physical community if you are different and that there are people here that love you. Police say they are waiting on autopsy results to officially determine the cause of Benedict's death. For NPR News, I'm Max Bryan in Tulsa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up this evening in business news, retailers and credit card companies have an ongoing feud regarding credit card swipe fees, the cost that retailers pay when customers use a credit card. Restaurants in particular struggle with the cost. It's now at the point where swipe fees are the third highest cost for restaurants right now, behind food and behind labor. That's coming up in business news starting at 6.30 on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. On stage now through March 3rd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. A dip for major stocks on Wall Street after some recent record highs. The Dow dropped nearly two-tenths of a percent today. S&P fell nearly four-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq was down about one-tenth of a percent. The average price of gasoline in the state is holding steady. The latest survey by AAA Northeast shows a gallon of gasoline selling for $3.18. as the same price as last week, $0.08 cents a gallon less than the national average. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum with Our Time on Earth, an immersive exhibition about creativity and our planet's future. On view now, PEM.org. 
A few fair weather clouds around tonight. Not too chilly, about 32 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny, still warm. Good deal of clouds in the afternoon especially. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Wednesday could be rainy, windy, and warm. Temperatures in the upper 50s with drier weather working its way in after that. This is 90.9 WBUR. 48 degrees now in Boston at 621. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at EasyCater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. This year's Oscars have a bona fide frontrunner, a film with 13 nominations, more than any other title this year. It is, of course, Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's epic about the making of the atomic bomb. Because this is the most important thing to ever happen in the history of the world. The biopic is not just being recognized for its story and acting, but also for its craft. Oppenheimer is nominated across many technical categories, including Best Cinematography and Best Sound. And today, we're going to learn a bit more about how it was made. Join me now are NPR's Mandalit Del Barco and Bilal Qureshi, who spent some time with the people behind the scenes of this movie. Hello to both of you. Hi, Elsa. Hey, Elsa. Hey. All right, so let's start with you, Mandalit. Christopher Nolan, I mean, he's known for having a very exacting approach to making his films. How do you see that in the way he used sound? Well, he's really traditional. And, you know, I spoke with one of the film's Oscar-nominated production sound mixers, Willie Burton. He told me Nolan is an audio genius who mostly records his actors and the ambient noise around them live on set and on location. Oh, wow. And, and Bilal, when it comes to images in Nolan's movies, I mean, there's a similar thing, right? Nolan is this evangelist for IMAX and using the biggest canvas possible, I hear. Yeah, so we're going to begin this deep dive behind the scenes with the film's cinematographer, Hoyte van Hoytema. He shot each of Christopher Nolan's last few films, and here he is. We kind of like choosing the the hardest way to do things or the the least sort of logical or least comfortable things. That has meant aerial battles in Dunkirk, freeway car chases in Tenet, and space shuttles and black holes in Interstellar. But Oppenheimer is a different kind of epic. Yes, of course, there's the Trinity test and the film's centerpiece explosion. But for the majority of its three hours, it's a biopic that unfolds in classrooms and congressional hearings, and in close-ups. Members of the security board, the so-called derogatory information in your indictment of me cannot be fairly understood except in the context of nightlife. Hoyte van Hoytema says that was both the visual challenge and the opportunity of Oppenheimer. You know, historically, we've been putting cameras on planes or on boats and did a lot of kind of impossible things. But to really go back to the base and to sort of strip it down and to look at the human face again and three hours long people talking, you know, faces. Hoyte van Hoytema is just one of the great naturalistic cameramen. Filmmaker Christopher Nolan. Over the years, using the IMAX format together, I think we've both found that some of the most striking compositions on that huge screen would come about as a result of a close-up, photographing a face, rather than a giant landscape. I mean, the landscapes, you know, are spectacular in IMAX, 
but more and more we've been drawn to trying to photograph the intimate moments on that format. Matt Mulcahy writes about cinematography for Filmmaker magazine. The final image of Oppenheimer is just a close-up push-in on the character of Oppenheimer with no dialogue and uh, a tight lens. It's, it's, it's a single image that really sums up the story in Oppenheimer's journey. There's a lot of detail captured by IMAX film, but those close-ups are actually harder that way, as Van Hoytema explains. The camera is not very practical because it's big and, and it's very loud. The camera itself sounds like a little little diesel generator and it, the design is, is, is kind of like a, like a hotel minibar, you know? And the black and white IMAX film that was required for some of the scenes didn't even exist. They started manufacturing the film for us, and I remember we got these two test rolls from Kodak, 65 millimeter film, 1,000 feet rolls. They're not just using old school techniques. They're, I think they are very, very innovative. Matt Mulcahy of Filmmaker Magazine says the visual process for how Oppenheimer was made, analog film, on location, and practical effects, makes its biography of a mind a more immersive and emotional experience. Even the abstract scenes that show atoms splitting and stars colliding in Dr. Oppenheimer's imagination were filmed in real life. We did a lot of tests. We did tests with, with powders and light and molten metal and aquariums with, with, with light and with brightness and darkness. But, but in the end, you know, it's not reality. It's sort of a poetic interpretation of what it is. It's, it's, it's in many ways, it's unvisualizable, but this, this, this was definitely our best attempt to do it. But that did mean dealing with those mini-bar-sized IMAX cameras, which also create their own disruptive soundtrack, as my colleague Mandalit Del Barco learned. Bilal, those IMAX cameras are super loud, but Christopher Nolan told us that just like the visuals, he likes to record sound live. He doesn't like to have his actors re-record their lines later, what's known as ADR, automatic dialogue replacement. You're looking for that that naturalism, that depth to the performance. There's really no substitute for getting a great recording on location that has the appropriate camera perspective and that has the genuine performance of the actor in the moment. To do that, I mean, you need a great sound recordist. Willie Burton is one of the greats. When I met Burton at his home in the Hollywood Hills, I found a fellow audiophile. Ooh, what kind uh, of mic is that? Wow. This is a Sennheiser mic. Sennheiser, wow. Uh, shotgun. Shotgun, okay. Uh -huh. Burton told me he and Nolan both like using boom and condenser microphones, equipment that's wired with cables on set and on location, not wireless or lavalier mics that are used widely on film sets these days. It doesn't have the full scope that a microphone like you're using today. So it sounds like a close-up all the time. A conventional microphone, you get the full sound of everything, and that's what Chris wants. Chris wants the footsteps. He wants the movement. With the actors, he wants to hear the props. He wants all of that. It's like old school. That's how we did it years ago. Over nearly five decades, Burton has worked with other big film directors, including Steven Spielberg and Ava DuVernay. Among his credits are The Color Purple, The Shawshank Redemption, and Green Mile. But the 73-year-old wasn't a typical Hollywood type. I was born outside of Tuscaloosa a little town called Matchaway, Alabama. It's a country town, basically in the woods. Burton eventually earned two Academy Awards. With Oppenheimer, he could become the first black person to win three Oscars. For this film, he says he had to dig trenches in the sand to hide the microphone wires. There was wind to contend with and that noisy IMAX camera. It's loud. It sounds like a... It's about five times louder than this, oh yeah. 
But, you know, it's so incredible looking. I mean, it blows your mind. Burton had also worked with Nolan on his 2020 film, Tenet. I mean, he spent a lot of money on this trying to, you know, quiet the camera. And then we realized that it really wasn't going to work. It's still noisy. No matter what you do, it's just noisy. For Oppenheimer, he says they sometimes shot close-ups with a somewhat quieter 65-millimeter camera. One of the more ingenious uses of sound was at the climax of the film, when Robert Oppenheimer and his team test a bomb that could destroy the planet. Here's Nolan. It's so thrilling to see an entire audience full of people just on tenterhooks hearing only the sounds of breathing that Willie was able to get from the actors on set. And then have everybody jolted out of their seats by the impact of the explosion. Burton says even he was surprised at the effect on the audience. A lady was sitting next to me and she had a soda and it was so loud, she jumped up. It scared us so bad, she spilled the soda all on me and in my shoe. So the rest of the movie, I had to sit there with my shoe off. That's the effect of Christopher Nolan's filmmaking approach for a movie about quantum physics and abstract science. I'm Mandalit Del Barco. I'm Bilal Qureshi. NPR News. In Los Angeles. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Eviction rules protected tenants who couldn't pay the rent during COVID-19 pandemic. But some tenants abused the system, and that's been hard on landlords. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, one landlord struggled to win an eviction. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 630. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com.